2: This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. On uh, Friday morning, we had talked a little bit about the person who attacked Congressman Lee Zeldin, the Republican candidate for governor of of New York State. And I denounced this person, and at the time, we didn't even have this person's name. And uh, now we have learned a great deal more about the person that uh, tried to stab congressman zeldin with one of these i don't even know what you call it but it's a it's a sharp object my wife carries the same one around she's the only other person that i've seen with one of these it's essentially it's a cat it's almost like a cat keychain with the ears being very very sharp the theory being you could use them almost as a hybrid brass knuckle and and knife and punch someone in the eye or even on their person and, and and stab them you could do some serious damage with this even though it's very lightweight. But the more that we uh, have learned about the the background of David Jacobonus, or Jacobinus, Jacobinus? It's got one of those names that you can't immediately tell how to pronounce it by by reading it. We'll call him David for the purposes of this discussion and for simplicity's sake. The, The more I feel like not only should he be denounced, But our entire system and our entire country should be denounced. The New York Post and some other uh, media outlets did some very good reporting over the weekend over this man. And essentially, David Jacobonis was a decorated military veteran discharged from the Army. And after the death of his wife and his medical discharge from the Army 10 years ago... According to neighbors and people that know them, he went down this downward spiral. One neighbor said he's going through some kind of mental break. He became more and more detached over the years after his wife died. And apparently um, he certainly has a problem with alcohol. And he said as much when he was interviewed after being arrested. Now, I think he should certainly be prosecuted. And I'm glad that the federal prosecutors stepped in here. But I really view the the failure to take care of David Jacobonis and the fact that he is mentally ill, and I believe, suffering from substance abuse and was in a position to attack a gubernatorial candidate like this. I think this is a problem with us as a country. You know how I think you should view a country and judge a country? By how we treat our veterans. And you know, the old statistic happens to be true. Every day, uh, 21 or 22 veterans a day die from suicide. Now that's a tragedy. That is a tragedy that should be the front page of every newspaper every day until it stops. But this is a guy that never really discussed politics or mentioned being angry at somebody. And he, was, he has children that, I guess, because of his alcoholism or because of his mental illness issue, his brother was granted custody of his two children after his wife died. But there's not just a problem with veteran suicide. There is a huge problem with veteran homelessness, There is a huge problem with veterans suffering from alcoholism and substance abuse. And I think that David Jacobonis, this is an American tragedy. Now, I'm not saying he shouldn't be punished for trying to uh, attack a gubernatorial candidate. He certainly should. But I would love to see Congressman Lee Zeldin, who, of course, is a veteran himself, and Kathy Hochul, and quite frankly, every politician in this state, maybe even in America— Use this opportunity as a way to address the issue of caring for veterans, specifically mental health care treatment for veterans. As far as I'm concerned, no veteran should be lacking for services. And unfortunately, um, i I know there are a lot of services available to veterans, including counseling, including substance abuse help, including help for alcoholism. But whatever systems are in place, they failed David Jacobinus here. we failed David Jacobinus, and I would love to see Zeldin, Hochul, everybody else say let 's pass david 's law, and in New York or around the country that if you 're a veteran. However you end up leaving the military, whether you're discharged due to a medical issue, as this gentleman was, honorably or dishonorably, the number one priority of the Department of Veterans Affairs is going to be your treatment, not just physically, but mentally. And I would... Love to hear your suggestions on how to do that. I I think there are a lot of great services available, but I think a big part of it is outreach. Now, you can't force someone to get help If if they don't want to be treated for their mental illness or for their substance abuse or for their alcoholism. It's very difficult to force them to do that. But when was the last time, and I don't know the answer to this question, but when was the last time that somebody from the Department of Veterans Affairs reached out to David here? Um, I find this really just so sad. The neighbor that spoke to the New York Post said he overheard David speaking to a property manager at the complex where he lives upstate, and the word relapse was thrown into the conversation. I view this as just a a real tragedy, and I'd love to hear your take on what we could do about this as a country, as a state, whether it means – more efficient outreach, more outreach, better services, more efficient services. I find that this is happening way too often. Thankfully, veterans are not attacking gubernatorial candidates way too often. But how often do you read a story where there's an incident with that involves a veteran who's battling alcoholism, substance abuse, mental illness. I suspect this person was battling All three. 800 848 9222. This was not a dumb guy. This is a guy that studied clinical laboratory sciences at George Washington University. He then took up criminal justice and psychology at the Rochester Institute of Technology. He was also a medical laboratory technician for the Army for five years. He was very active in a lot of veterans' groups. He served in the Army as a medical laboratory specialist. He deployed to Iraq for a year. A year. He racked up a dozen medals along the way. A Bronze Star, Army Commendation, two Army Achievement Medals, as well as one for good conduct and the National Defense Service Medal. If our country is going to send people off to war and then forget about them— as soon as they come home, and let them, uh, when they're dealing with tragedies in their own life, go into a, a a free fall mentally, then we ought to be ashamed of ourselves. And this ought to be something that's a nonpartisan issue, not Democrat, Republican, Independent. This ought to be something that we deal with pronto. 800-848-9222 if you want to comment. That's 1-800-848-9222. Let me uh, give you a preview of what's coming up on the show today. Coming up in about 15 minutes, I'm very, very excited to talk with Spencer Schneider. Spencer Schneider is a very bright guy. He is a native of Long Island, a lawyer, a marathon runner, lifeguard. And he got recruited to be a part of this cult called school. And he got out. He was part of this cult for a long time. He's going to share with us what he saw in the cult, and then he's going to describe, um, you know, how he got out. There was a big article in the New York Post on Sunday, all about um, all about this particular cult having a lot of property upstate. Apparently, this cult, the one that Spencer was involved in, they would actually go out of their way to cater and cater to and recruit people that were doing very well financially. So they wanted wealthy cult members. So it's, uh, it's interesting. We're going we're gonna to get into that discussion in just a bit. I'm looking forward to it very much. And then in the uh, second hour of our program, we're going to talk with Jeffrey and He's going to be here in studio. He is somebody that was uh, that is a very, very funny guy, a brilliant comedian, and uh, an author, and a former dentist. He'll join us in studio to talk about some of the projects that he's up to. But uh, first, I'd love to hear from you on this issue of David Jacobonis, the person that tried to attack Lee Zeldin and... Uh, I'd love to know if you share my consternation and frustration that as a country, we allow veterans to get to a place like this. 800-848-9222. Now it is possible certainly that you could be a veteran and not be a very good person. You know, um, that certainly happens. Lee Harvey Oswald comes to mind among others. I suspect though that this was somebody that was a relatively normal, well-functioning member of society, and he couldn't deal with some of the things that he saw overseas, some of the adjustment back to civilian life, and then the death of his wife, coupled with losing custody of his children, I suspect that just caused him to snap and get into things like this. 800 9222 Alex is in Brooklyn. Hello, Alex.
3: Yeah, hey Frank th- hey Frank thanks for taking the call now. I don't know about this specific case, you know, you 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 say that, you know, he had a wife and a family, so I guess he did have a job and you know was pretty set up for life, but I think that a way to stop all these suicides coming from veterans at this high rate is that giving them the education that a regular 18-year-old gets at the age of eighteen, when wait, wait. They, when I, so you, the, you, you serving... lost,
2: Alex. I lost a word that you said there. A way to stop this is, uh, and then but gets at the age of eighteen. A way
3: to, yeah. Okay. a Way to stop them. The way to stop it is we should be giving them education while they're serving this country. We should be teaching. We should. There should be courses available to them, and we should be giving them the education that we give to a regular eighteen-year-old in college.
2: Well, I don't uh, I don't disagree with you, Alex, but I, I think a lot of the problem, and thanks for the call, and if you want to add anything, you can do so at 800-848-9222. I think a lot of the problem is the is not necessarily lack of education or lack of intelligence. I just said, this gentleman studied at George Washington University and the Rochester Institute of Technology. This guy was not lacking for smarts. I think the problem is... He was using alcohol and who knows what else to deal with some psychological issues. And I feel like that's where we are missing the boat as a country. And whether this should be not a federal priority, not a state priority, not a city priority, not a priority for the for the nonprofit sector, not a priority for the, no, the private sector. This should be a priority for everybody. The fact that we allow decorated veterans who've won a dozen medals fighting in wars that they never asked, to, never asked to fight in, that some politician sent them to, the fact that we let them get to such a place where they're battling these kinds of psychological issues and alcoholism issues, I think is a, a national tragedy that we all need to confront. Every every government, nonprofit group, and the pub, the private sector and the public sector. To me, this has got to be an all hands on deck approach to what I view as a national crisis. Alfred is in Yonkers. Hello, Alfred.
4: Hi. Oh, hi. Good evening, Frank. Um, thank you for taking my call. I hope was all as well with you. Um, I just wanted to make a comment about you know these veterans that um, you know I am a veteran myself. I didn't serve overseas, but
5: you know, my my brother was a Vietnam veteran. He never would have attacked anyone. He was very you know, he had his he had his um how how would you say? He had his faculties, you know, like like a lot of these guys
4: I think they're just involved with drugs and, and Oh, and, I I, you
2: know, think and like I think that's true. I think that's true.
4: You know, like, like, you know, when when people say, "Oh, it's, oh, it's the war that messed them up," I, I think it's more their own, you know, their own issues. With
2: uh, I, I don't dispute sense, that, everything. Alfred. And, and look, you, you've uh, worn the our nation's uniform. I never have, so I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna, you know, preach you about what's what. Uh, yeah. I, I see this a lot with homeless veterans. When I pass homeless veterans in the street, you could tell yes. they're chemically altered. Very often. Very often. Or, or they're drunk. Or they're drunk pretty much all the time. Now, my my view is, let's say everything that you said is correct. I still think we owe it to them for their service, and to you, uh, to our country, to find a way to help them um, conquer their addiction. I, I really do. To me, I don't care after you risk your life serving in a war, um, risk your life for our country i don't care if you are uh taking drugs to put the violent imagery that you're seeing at night at bay or if you're doing it because you know you just got hooked on heroin because you had a back injury and you couldn't uh and you couldn't get a prescription for your opioid of cho- choice anymore whatever the case may be i think we still owe it to you to find a way to make sure that you don't continue to spiral downward into addiction, I think that's the least we could do. The least we could do as a country. Ed is in the Bronx. Hello, Ed.
1: Yeah, Frank. Uh, my, I was. I didn't serve in Nam, but my brother was in the Marines. was eighteen months in Nam. The only thing I'd change from what you're saying is I, I, I understand what you're saying, but this group of people had the experience of being in war, and basically. It's PTSD. I mean, if say they're going to serve in their country. That means you go out and you have to kill other people, watch people you're serving with get killed. And nobody talks. I mean, that's what they can't deal with. And some people. Right. In other words, you're talking about the effects. You know, they might have been taking heroin and Nam. The effects, the the cause is the fact that they had to be in war. Agree. Agree. That, but that's what, what you when you what you you're sanitizing it by saying they went to serve their country, but you know the fact of the matter is, you know you know the history of the Bonus Army in World War One. Abs- absolutely. And, okay, so you know, you know, so the point is, um, see, I get upset when I watch the guys with cowboy hats saying I should send money to protect the veterans, you know, to save the veterans. The government should be doing that. If, you know, I, I, I'm I a little emotional about this stuff. But all I'm saying is this subset of people had a certain life experience that they couldn't deal with. Right. Uh, and that, yeah. that, that's, that's the thing. So, like, when, you know, when I – well, okay. So, anyway, um, I am 100% behind you on that. And it's kind of repulsive that the VA uh, is there, but my brother uh, – I don't want to talk about it, but sure. the fact of the matter is the government, should, if you're going to send people out to fight wars 10 years later, don't treat them like they're a problem. You caused the problem. Agreed.
2: Agreed. Ed, Ed you're, you're exactly right, and and uh, I'm, I'm, it sounds like your brother may have had a hard time also. I'm sorry for that, but uh, I agree with just about everything you said, and this is one of the reasons that I have never been— Uh, As long as I've been self-aware, I've never been one of these guys that thinks we should be sending troops willy-nilly. Oh, let's send them to Iraq. Let's send them to Afghanistan. Let's send them to Syria. I don't think the people, the the chicken hawks, quite frankly, that uh, people like Liz Cheney, for instance, that make that argument really understand that it's not like you're moving around Horses on a risk board, horses and cannons on a risk board game. These are people's lives you're dealing with, and I think the film, The Hurt Locker, does a good job. Now, I realize it's a motion picture, not reality, but I think that film does a good job capturing some of what's, um, you know, what what these folks deal with. The only thing I'm gonna I'm gonna separate from what Ed, I don't want to say even separate. The only thing I'm gonna add to what Ed said there because I think he said a lot that, I, and I agree with all of it. The only thing that I will add is when he says the government should be doing it, meaning taking care of veterans. Well, they're not. They're not. So the government should be doing it. But so what's the alternative? Are we going to sit here and let veterans attack gubernatorial candidates until the Department of Veterans Affairs gets their act together? I think there's also a role for local government and for the private sector. And for nonprofit groups. Uh, you know, one thing I like, a group that I talk about a lot, and I don't get any money or anything, but it's this group, Gold Shield. You can go to their website, goldshield.us. That's a way for the private sector to help out in terms of d- doing outreach to veterans. It doesn't cost any tax money. Basically, as a consumer, you just shop where you see a gold shield. And as a business, you give money to one of these approved charities that do veterans outreach. But if it's not them, there's a lot of other. Tunnel to Towers Foundation, they do a lot of great work. Uh, I mean, you talk about a veteran who comes back maimed. Uh, There was one veteran that they built a house for, lost all four of his limbs. Now, you imagine what it's like to try and adjust to society after losing all four of your limbs and they built a house specially for him that allowed him to be able to use, do things like turn on the lights, turn on the television, turn on the radio, use the stairs, and uh, or go up and down, um, even though he didn't have limbs. Brendan Morocco, I believe, is the is the serviceman that uh, that dealt with that. I, be, I believe, but I think that if the government fails, I don't think we as people, as Americans, should shrug our shoulders and say, oh, well." sorry, I'd love to help, but it's their problem. The government sent them there, uh, turned to the government. Because, one, it's not morally right. Two, then this is what happens. Because the next person that uh, this person, David, attacks when he's drunk, and who knows, maybe delusional, could be you. Or it could be a member of your family. So I, I, I think that's too easy a cop-out to say, well, the government should do it. I don't think that's I don't think that's a healthy approach. I think until the government does do something, we all need to do something. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. We're going to talk cults in just a minute with uh, Spencer Schneider, but Jacqueline is in Brooklyn. Hello, Jacqueline.
6: Good morning, Frank. Um, I happen to share a lot of your sentiments on what you're talking about with regard to this issue with the veterans. Um, And there are a lot of individual, private, nonprofit organizations, many of which you mentioned. Um, I also have come across a lot of others from other programs that I watch mostly on uh, a Christian Cable Network show, Mike Huckabee has a show, he often spotlights and has guests on his show that are themselves veterans and have started these organizations to help support veterans and their families with regard to all the types of issues that they face. I disagree with you on one thing, though, slightly. In terms of it being the government's responsibility. They take hundreds of trillions of dollars of our taxes over decades and decades and decades. They have a responsibility to help support every single veteran. I don't care. Every single veteran that is alive from any um, country that they've been to, whatever capacity they have served. And I'd like to point out one other thing. President Trump was the first president in many, many decades who started to deal with and resolve some of these complex issues with regard to the VA administration so that the veterans wouldn't have to wait these ridiculous amounts of times to be able to see a physician. And as you are probably well aware, and I know a lot of your audience is already well aware, they continuously, under the current administration, are talking about closing the VA hospital in Bay Ridge, Bronx. Yeah,
2: that's a great point. Uh, That is a a great point, Jack, and I'm glad you mentioned that. And thank you for the call. And by the way, I, I can't stress this enough to what Jacqueline was saying and Ed is saying. I'm not saying that the government shouldn't get its acts together. Of course they should. But I am I am saying that if, if the government doesn't get its act together, that we shouldn't sit by and let people that were willing to die for us continue to degrade physically and mentally. I, I mean, I'm not willing to do that. So let's figure out a way to deal with these folks. And another issue that deals with mental health extensively is the issue of cults. We're going to explore it with Spencer, with Spencer Schneider straight ahead.
0: It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano.
2: seeing Benny and the Jets. Uh, Elton John did one of his final farewell concerts. Yes, I said that correctly. At uh, MetLife Stadium over the weekend. He's doing apparently two of these farewell concerts. And uh, still just an incredible performer by all accounts. Uh, a uh, really, an incredibly talented musician. Well, if you are lucky, hopefully you don't know much about cults because chances are if you know a lot about cults that means you or a loved one have had something to have had some negative experience with a cult because the more you learn about cults the more you find out that there are almost only negative experiences now a lot of times the word cult gets overused we use the term um cult following as if to uh, refer to a film or a television program that only a few people know about and really enjoy. We use the term cult of personality uh, to talk about people that uh, are really, they have followers not based on any ideology or principle, but based on who they happen to be. But other than that, I feel like a lot of people just sort of have some vague idea of what cults are, and that uh, cults tend to recruit people who are battling with loneliness, depression, anxiety, something along those lines. In fact, a lot of you may remember the television program Seinfeld when George is over the moon that he's going to have some carpet cleaners come to his house and he's getting a really good deal. But he ultimately finds that the reason he is getting such a good deal there's well, a little more to it than meets the eye. I gotta go home and up up at the house for the carpet cleaners. You know, they're doing my whole place for $25? Oh, no, no, no.
5: Not the Sunshine Carpet Cleaners. Yeah, you heard of them? They're a crazy religious cult. The carpet cleaning is just a means for them to get into your apartment. So, for
2: a $25 cleaning, I can listen to some pointless blather.
1: I do it. I'm not even getting the cleaning. <coughs> We're pretty much finished. There's just one more thing. There it comes. <clears throat>
7: You forgot to sign your check.
1: Sorry. You sure uh, there isn't anything else? No. So that's it? Uh, Uh, Unless you need a receipt. I wish that was all I needed. Life can be so confusing. I'm searching for answers anywhere. Good luck with that. Did I...
2: Spencer Schneider has been all over the place. You might have read him about about him in the New York Post just yesterday. Everybody is talking about his book. He's a native of Long Island, a lawyer, and he was a part of this cult called School. And uh, he is someone who now, as uh, the author of this new memoir called Manhattan Cult Story, my unbelievable true story of sex crimes, chaos and survival, has been doing whatever he can to shed some light onto what cults do in general and what school does and did specifically. Spencer, thanks so much for joining me on the radio.
4: Thanks for having me, Frank. Love your show.
2: Uh, well, that's, uh, thank you. That's awfully nice of you to say. Hey, so just so folks know your perspective and where you were coming from, what was going on in your life prior to your involvement in school? Well,
4: I had a really very um, upbringing. I grew up in Long Island. Um, you know, Spencer, you, you,
2: your your yeah. phone's a little screwy, so I'm I'm going to put you on hold and maybe you can get to a better a better serv- okay. a, a better area in terms of uh, of service, so that we don't want to miss. Uh, a word here, just uh, double check, uh, Kenneth, on uh, on Spencer's uh, you know uh, availability there. Talking with Spencer Schneider, his book, which everybody's talking about, it's fast becoming one of the most talked about and best selling books anywhere. Manhattan Cult Story: My Unbelievable True Story of Sex Crimes, Chaos, and Survival. And uh, he also has this blog about school. It's called Cult Revolt. And uh, he's also a contributing editor for East Magazine. Uh, Spencer, I think we uh, we have you back there. Uh, sorry, please continue.
4: Yeah, I, I'm here now. I hope it sounds better. Great. Um, yeah. So, um, you know, I, I grew up in Long Island. I had a very excellent family. Um, you know, uh, they gave me everything I needed. I had an excellent background. Um, went to a great college. Went to a great law school. Got a great job. Very lucky. Um and when I was 29, I, I would say the most difficult thing that I went through, well, two things. One was my father passed away when I was 25, which was a difficult situation, but not unusual. A lot of people have that kind of tragedy in their life. But um, and also not unusual was that I worked really hard um, when I was 29. I spent most of my time working, you know, 10, 12-hour days uh, like a lot of people do. Um, and I guess when you're young and, and anytime you want to have more fun in your life. And I guess that was the most vulnerable thing that I had in my life. And I certainly opposite to George, I wasn't looking for, I mean, I don't think he was looking for a cult, but I certainly was not looking for, I, I mean, any kind, um, uh, group or anything spiritual at all in my life, uh, that wasn't what I thought I, I wanted or needed, um, and it wasn't for sure. Um, but I mean, that's kind of the lead up to keep mm-hmm. going. And well, uh, so and, and again involved.
2: and again, Spencer, your, your phone is a little screwy. So if if you could mm-hmm. get to an area where that might have a little bit better uh, service, then um, you know that would be that would be great because I don't want to miss anything. Um, yeah. OK. I, I am curious, then. It sounds like you have a relatively normal, well-adjusted life. You're clearly a very intelligent guy. You're not someone that's uh, considered from the wrong side of the tracks at all. How did you get involved in school, the cult school?
4: Yeah, I'm terribly sorry about my phone connection. I'm trying to find spots in my house Um I got involved because I was invited by um, a friend, you know, the educated guy, last person you'd expect to be involved in a group. He was kind of investigating me, grooming me for several weeks uh, to just learn more about me and see if I'd be open to what he said was joining um, a, a study group to talk about esoteric ideas and to, um, you know, improve your life that's really what he said. My initial reaction was that it sounded culty to me, literally. I mean, that's literally what I said to him. And, um, you know, I, I agreed after he pressured me to go to a single meeting, which I found, uh, which was simply in a loft in downtown Manhattan, 1989, um, a bunch of uh, people like me, you know, middle-class uh, You know, professionals really, mostly all professionals, more than middle class. You know, we were, uh, uh, you know, had more than most, I would say. And, um, uh, you know, I wasn't inclined to return, but um, I had a crisis in my life. I I lost my job um, in that first month. And when I needed people around me and to support me in a way that really nobody, had ever in my life, even though I had a great support and whatnot in my life, these people were so encouraging and so loving in a room full of sixty people, and the leaders were just there in a way that was unlike anything I'd had before.
2: And uh, what was your job at the time that you that you had lost?
4: Yeah, I was working at as an associate in one of the firms in the city, um, but it actually was um, dissolving. And so I had to find something else. Um, and uh, I actually decided to start my own firm, and which I've been doing continuously since then. Um, but they were there to sort of uh, encourage that effort to start my own firm. And I became very successful doing that. And I attributed that success to my involvement with them.
2: Oh, and so the trajectory that you just uh, that you just uh, described, Experiencing a setback, or maybe for some people it's worse. Maybe it's a full-fledged tragedy, and right. feeling despondent about it, and then having this group of people that's there to lift you up, and then you overcome that setback, and you ascribe that uh, that overcoming of the setback to the group that's li- lifting you up and surrounding you. Is that a pretty common trajectory in cult world, from what you gather? Uh,
4: uh, that's textbook. Textbook. That's textbook. And, and this group was really good at identifying people who were in a particular sweet spot of being successful, um, you know, making money, being uh, you know highly educated. You know, I loved studying. I loved philosophy. I missed that, you know. And they uh, attracted themselves. Uh, they, they made themselves uh, uh, interested in those kind of people. And because they wanted, you know, wealthy people mostly and but also who were somehow dissatisfied with something could have been uh, anything from losing a job to not a spouse that they liked or any spouse or just missing something that uh, uh, that they were able to promise. I mean, This is, you know, Frank, this is really the textbook playbook of all kinds of hoaxers, you know, all con men, con women. They do the same thing. They promise you what you want with no intention of delivering.
2: So uh, let's talk about, about your group specifically. Who was Sharon Gans?
4: Sharon Gans um, was a, um, a, a, an actress uh, who uh, appeared in uh, off-Broadway shows in the 60s in New York and then was in Slaughterhouse-Five, uh, which was the one movie she was in. She met a man named Alex Horn, and uh, they lived in San Francisco for many years, and they founded this theater group uh, in the the late 70s in San Francisco, which was really, uh, you know, a front for a cult. And they um, were alleged to have abused um, members of the theater company and, and whatnot, and were eventually you know, uh, exposed by the San Francisco Chronicle and moved to New York and then went underground and kind of rebranded themselves as teachers of an esoteric school. But that was the big thing. They wanted to stay secret in New York because they didn't want scrutiny. And that secrecy is now over, as you mentioned, because it's now becoming known, um, uh, in the world, which is a good thing.
2: How would they get, how would they recruit such prominent people, such top tier people, lawyers, businessmen, others? These are intelligent people like yourself. How could all these folks be fooled into joining a group like this?
4: Well, they cast a very wide net. And so I would say their attention, you know, the attention rate was very low. Um, but. They recruited, like I say, a wide net. And the way they did it was by having, you know, um, uh, the most, you know, the best people with the best personalities, whatnot, you know, just meet strangers and befriend them in public places in New York. And that's how they still do it now to this day. You know, they'll meet folks at a coffee shop or, you know, a a bookstore or whatnot, make friends, sort of wine and dine for time, find out about them, vet them. Make sure they're the type of people who are not going to talk about this, and then invite them to a meeting. Some people, uh, you know, aren't interested. They don't stay long, but some people stay, and many have stayed for decades like I do.
2: And what sort of – and we're talking with Spencer Schneider, author of the book Manhattan Cult Story, and this group, school, what sort of stuff would they do? What would you do? What was sort of the cult activities that everybody would be expected to participate in?
4: Right. So, again, nobody thinks they're joining a cult. I didn't think I was joining a cult. I thought I was uh, joining something called school, and it was really simple. We met two nights a week, um, uh, you know, 7 o'clock to midnight, and had, you know, discussions. We had meetings. We had, uh, uh, you know, sort of we talked about books, um, uh, the philosophy of Gertrude and of Spensky, and we sort of had like a group therapy session. But there were other things we did as well. Um, uh, the leader had a, a, a ranch in Montana. Many of us went there each summer, and we helped construction. We did work there, and um, we did construction work in in, in New York area. And um, uh, and there were other things. But it wasn't like we did um, like the Seinfeld uh, carpet cleaning company. It was nothing like that.
2: And. Um there were reports that school would actually force gay people into conversion therapy. Is that true? And yes. what would the cult have to gain by forcing gay people to convert?
4: Well, uh, they have absolutely nothing to gain because it's impossible to convert uh, people to anything. I mean, they're just born that way, and that's uh, how how it is. But um, I think what— I, I i don't think it was a financial thing as much there weren't that many of it happening, but there were plenty. I think it just satisfied the leaders Sharon's desire to control people's lives and she and her husband were uh, you know very anti uh you know very anti gay very homophobic it was a Right
2: you know, Spencer, I, I, I'm really not hearing you, so uh, we're going to have to reschedule. Uh, I think on a day when we can get you uh, on a better phone connection, or better yet, maybe in studio or something. I, I uh, okay. I'm sorry because I I really am uh, I'm so interested in your story and your take on uh, on all this, but uh, I, I appreciate the, um, the the time. I hope folks were able to uh, to make out a bit of what what you said. Let's let's do this again soon. We'll regroup and re- and do this again soon. Thanks. I will. I'll, I'll come by. Great. Great. That'd be great. Thank you. much okay. Appreciate it. Um, a, a really important issue that uh, I don't think is getting the uh, well, now it's getting the attention because of Nexium and other high profile cults. You know, there is a political cult that was led by Lyndon LaRouche before he died. LaRouche and that he died. That cult continues. And I get emails from them like crazy. They're running somebody for U.S. Senate in New York as well. And the stories that you hear, and hopefully we'll get Spencer back in the future, but the stories that you hear about these folks as part of this LaRouche cult who um, give all their money away and all their free time, the Lenora Fulani cult with Fred Newman, same situation, same situation. And uh, that's why... When I was involved in the uh, Independence Party for a long time, a big part of my mission was cleansing the Independence Party of that Falani cult. So cults are very scary. It's very scary, and you could lose people to cults. And we'll have Spencer back, I don't know, maybe later this week or, or in the future. All right, uh, if you want to comment on uh, anything that we talked about in our discussion or on the issue of, uh, a veteran, of, of veteran mental health and addiction. In general, coming up next hour, we have uh, Jeffrey Gurian in studio. He's certainly uh, a wild card. You never know what's going to happen with Jeffrey Gurian. Meantime, let me say a little. Bill in Montclair. Hello, Bill.
8: Yeah, yeah, Frank. Uh, I'll just tell you, I spent four months in an uh, in active duty. Uh, I, I had ROTC. I was a leader of three hundred. Uh, got company. They wanted to send me to medical school. I did not want to stay in the military for the rest of my life. Uh, got a job on Wall Street. Worked out. Retired. Uh, uh, retired very early. Uh, and and I'll tell you, I I, I I'm, I'm let's just say I followed things from the age of 13. The three uh, three incredibly informed people are Charlie Rose. Me and a guy I'm speaking to right now, I said well-informed. <laughs> NYU is intelligent. My school's intelligent, but well-informed. Very few people are informed about very little. Uh, and I'll, I'll just tell you uh, what is astoundingly devastating is that we have 2 million people at the border, and we have a $30 trillion deficit and they 're going to spend uh hundreds of millions, very possibly, at a time when there are forty thousand homeless vets uh, and multiple suicides each month and I just want to tell you, and you 're going to know what I 'm talking about, and he 's probably listening. God bless you, John Castamathides and Mr. Fisher of Fisher House, who are going to cure that problem. Now let's cure the problem of uh, uh, of what the Democratic Party uh, has become, uh, specifically anti-certain religions. And they aren't even liberal. Uh, liberals are fine. JFK was a great liberal. Harry Truman was a great liberal. They're, these people— Uh, are are dogmatically disgusting. Uh, Bill, Uh, I appreciate
2: appreciate your service very much. I certainly echo your sentiments in praising both uh, Fisher House and John Katsimatidis. I really don't want to make this a partisan issue because I think we get into a very dangerous situation. What I would like to do is create a situation where all the candidates in every party race to see who can do more. To care for veterans, right? Uh, because I, I, look, if you're there, are a lot of veterans that happen to be Democrats. That's okay. That's fine. A lot of veterans that happen to be Republicans. Great. But uh, the common denominator is none of them should be left behind by their country, as far as I'm concerned. So I, I know people have very strong opinions when it comes to politics and this issue specifically, but I, I really I want to try to avoid making it a partisan issue if we can. Um, all right, 800-848-9222. We will continue with your phone calls straight ahead. It's
0: The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Marano.
2: We'll continue with your calls in just a moment. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. So Saturday, I did want to give you uh, an update on this. Uh, I had um, I had told you in advance of Saturday, I think Thursday, that I'd read this article in uh, in Axios about the the benefits of boredom psychologically, and I, I was a little, you know. I, I, I felt maybe I was missing something because it's been so many years since I was bored. So what I said that I would do is on Saturday after Michael Smirconish to essentially abstain from radio, television, my mobile phone, anything except in-person interaction with people and the printed word. And that's what I did. from about 10 a.m. on Saturday until about uh, 10 p.m., I withheld – using any of those things. And it was not that difficult, I have to tell you. I did like it. I really did. Now, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that uh, while I was enjoying not being without a phone, which was my favorite aspect of it, my least favorite aspect of it, was being without a radio and not being able to hear some of the great radio programming that I enjoy on Saturday. But my, um, I'm not going to sit here and say that I was struck by this Nobel Prize-style idea with this sudden flash of inspiration. That's not the case. But I did feel as if I it, I did have an opportunity to do some thinking, where that I may not do the rest of the the week when I am looking at my phone all the time, listening to the radio all the time, watching television, looking at my computer, answering emails. So my plan is I'm going to try this every Saturday. And maybe when we're on vacation in um, the first week in August, maybe I'll do it more than just Saturday. Maybe I'll do it uh, for a few days. So we'll see how that goes. 800-848-9222. But I, I would say so far, so good. I was a-, a pleasant experiment, and, and uh, I'm definitely going to try it again in the future. Al is in Manhattan. Hello, Al. Hello,
9: Frank. So we meet again, Frank. Anyways. When I was younger, I used to work in the Fulton Street fish market. And on the way back, I lived in Queens. I worked in Manhattan. So I was about 18 and 19 years old, working with all these older men. I'd get on the train, I'd smell like a fish. But I didn't care. I was going back and forth to work, 19. And on the way home one time on Fulton Street, I see this beautiful blonde-headed girl. Mm. She's beautiful. So I go up to her. I started talking to her. She didn't mind the smell. I kept talking. They said, you know what? We're having a little rally or a party or whatever it was. Now, me, being a dog, like most men are, my, my antenna went up. I said, I'm coming to that one. So, sure enough, that day comes. I go to this gathering. To me, they were all people that didn't look like they ate much meat. They had light, white complexions. So I don't see the girl that I originally saw. But I see a few other ones, so I start talking. Again, I told you, I'm a dog. So the dog and to go. And
2: all these women were attractive women?
9: Most of them were, yeah. Uh-huh. But the, the, some of them had the weird light complexions, like um, no protein. That's how I surmised it when I was there. So with that, we start talking. Well, they were asking me question after question. And I would just sit there and... I'd, Listen, I'd answer what I want to, but I noticed when I asked them questions, they told me, "You know what? You're not for me. You're not for us. You have to leave." So, what it is, I say, stay there.
2: The, what it is is what Al?
9: When you stay there long enough, they know that they get, to, they got to, to go
2: further. So uh All right, I'm losing you. We're not having good luck with the phones uh, today. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Hey, Jeffrey Gurian is here. I'm very much looking forward to talking with him. Keep asking questions.
10: He's your numero uno.
0: This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
1: They're running a strange program, y'all.
0: Now, here's Frank Morano.
2: Well, it is always a treat whenever I get an opportunity to spend some time in person with Jeffrey Gurian. But when I get to do it on the radio, the treat is not just mine, it's yours. Jeffrey Gurian, if you are not familiar with Jeffrey Gurian, I almost envy you because you are in store for a delightful hour of uh, happiness, of positive thinking, of humor, of great stories, If you already know who Jeffrey Gurian is, then you already know what you're in store for, but you should still keep listening anyway. Jeffrey Gurian is a comedy writer, a stand-up comic, a host, an author, a producer, a director, and of all things, a former dentist. And he's a, a friend of mine. Jeffrey, it's great to see you again.
11: Frank, it is so good to be here. Really, I love the show. I love what you do, and you 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 put out positive energy to your audience, and I really appreciate that. Thank you. Well, we definitely try. How's uh, how's the summer going for you so far? <sighs> well, <laughs> I made the mistake of going to a beach party yesterday in a hundred degree weather. Oh boy! And it was out at Reese Park, and I accepted because I just it was there were friends of mine, and I walked twenty minutes on the sand. and oh. you know how hard it is to walk on the sand in general. They had. For some reason, they set up a tent very far away at Fort Tilden Park, and I felt like I was going to faint. Reese Park is in Rockaway, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, I stayed a couple of hours. It was fun. But the walk... I should have never done that to myself. Oh. It's actually very dangerous to be out in the heat. And you can oh, see, yeah. if you look at my shoulders, that's the sunburn I got I, <laughs> on my shoulders. Sunblock? Did you wear sunblock? I wear sunblock. And you still got burned? I still got burned. Are you a swimmer? Degrees. Do you swim? No, no, I don't swim. Well, if I do swim, it's in a pool. I don't go in the ocean, especially with all the, the shark sharks. stories now. Yeah, right. I'm not looking to do any of that. You know, uh, People you belong on the land, I think, not in the
2: water. You, you know what, what I've been meaning to ask you, even privately, but uh, since you're, we're here on the radio, I'll ask you uh, publicly. I, I don't know how you find the time to manage your schedule because uh, clearly you're doing a lot of writing, both in terms of jokes, in terms of bits, in terms of humor. Then you're, I feel like you're out there everywhere and you do such a great job marketing yourself and then you're covering all sorts of events and doing interviews at the events How do you balance, because I struggle with this myself, right? How do you balance finding the time to be creative and to write and finding the time to market yourself and go to all the functions that you need to be in order to be
11: a visible presence? I. um, What's your secret? Is there there three of you? Is there Jeffrey Gurian double somewhere? (laughs) People often say that. I'm everywhere, right? I I slept many years ago. That was the story. I, I don't need a lot of sleep. I um, I prioritize. I do everything that I enjoy doing. So, for instance, this coming week on Wednesday, I'm going up to the Montreal Just for Laughs Festival. Um, it's their 40th anniversary. It's the biggest comedy festival in the world, the oldest comedy festival. I've been going for at least 30 years. They think that I might be the longest attendee I actually found my VIP pass from 1992, kidding and it's in pristine condition. I, of yeah. that,
2: I'm not surprised. Either of those things yeah. that
11: you still have it or that it's in
2: good condition. I want to talk to you yeah. about the Just for Last Festival yeah. in a second, but just to uh, I'm going to try one more time on your creative process, right? Do you uh, how disciplined are you with your writing? Do you say, all right, one hour a day, I'm going to, you know, set aside everything and do some writing on my book or on a routine? Or do you just write
11: things down as things as you get struck with inspiration? How does it work? It's interesting. Well, it's even interesting to me. I carry notes with me all the time. When I think of something funny, I write it down. I uh, I use my ADHD. To my advantage. We're all a little bit OCD, a little bit obsessive. When I start writing, I can write for hours at a time. I don't have a schedule. I write when I need to. If I'm writing for a comedian and they need something tomorrow, I'll stay up all night if I have to and write. I have that ability. I guess it's a gift. Uh, I can write. You know, when I was writing my books, my happiness books, I just wrote nonstop every yeah. day. I'm inspired when I'm inspired to say something. I put everything else aside, and I just manage to fit it in. The most important thing that I fit in is my family. I don't neglect my family. I visit my children all the time. That, to me, is my priority. Everything else gets fit in. I don't really know how I do it. It's just uh, I'm an A-type personality. That's great. And I make sure I get things done. I'm very reliable. I'm always early, never late on a project. No,
2: I, uh, I don't doubt that. I uh, was reading about you in page six. You're a regular in the pages of page six. And uh, for a second, I was surprised. And then immediately, I was not surprised to learn that you're in the midst of a collaboration with my friend, Noel Ashman. The reason I was surprised for a moment is because Mm -hmm. I've known Noel for probably about 20 years, known you for a bit, and uh, I didn't know that you guys knew one another. And then the reason my surprise was very short-lived is because both of you seem to know everybody. So it really (laughs) shouldn't have surprised me that the two of you know one another. Uh, Noel Ashman is a, a, a nightclub impresario, a film producer. Tell me about
11: you You're actually writing two films in collaboration with him. Tell yeah. me about this collaboration with Noel. <clears throat> well, first of all, you can't live in New York and not know Noel. It's true. <laughs> you know, and I mean, he's owned so many clubs and big clubs, Veruca and The yeah. Plum, and, you know, just like on and on. And he's always been in that. And I was on the nightlife scene for many years. Uh, which is important in New York City. It Even may sound. You,
2: and the interesting <clears throat> thing is, neither of you are a
11: drinker. You, you're no. not a
2: drinker, and neither is Noel.
11: And Noel is not a drinker. And that's how we get things done. <laughs> <I guess so>. <laughs> <laughs> when you're a drinker, you get a lot of drinking done, that's but true. not much else. That's true. You Maybe a- that's the the uh, the secret sauce in the creative process that I'm missing. Well, people have a lot of plans when they're drinking. They it's just true. never come to fruition. They're, right? <laughs> yeah, they, they, you know, they're planning a lot on the bar stool. <laughs> right. but, but if you're not drinking, you're actually out doing stuff. So uh, Noel and I have been friends for a long time. And, and then you know he went into film production, and he's done, I think, 18 or 20 films already. It was just announced that he's doing John Travolta's new film. He recently did one with Bruce Willis. So I showed him two scripts that I wrote. One is a romantic comedy, which is in the vein of the way I usually work. I, um, I'm known as a comedy writer. But then I wrote my first non-comedy project. And if people, by the way, if people aren't familiar with Noel's work, a lot of the
2: films that he tends to make, they're sort of action films <clears throat> that, uh, that tend to be more popular maybe overseas mm-hmm. than they are here in the United States. Right? Yep. So a romantic comedy is not
11: necessarily in his ballywick. Not usually. Not usually. But this is a fun story. It's a romantic comedy about a very unlikely couple. So if you could picture like Woody Allen and Kate Upton, maybe, <laughs> you know, you know something like, like a, a nerdy comedian who becomes very cool during the course of the film, you know, and this beautiful girl who had been dating a hell's angel who for some unknown reason falls for this Woody Allen type character. And it's a very... It's a very unusual story. I try and write things that have not been done before. And what's the name of it? Uh, Baby and Max.
2: Baby and Max. Baby
11: and Max, okay. yeah. And people like the title. It's, it's, it's a really feel-good story, really a feel-good story, about a guy who starts out as nothing and uh, very pro women story. And he becomes a, a huge star. And this beautiful girl was always loyal to him. But he starts treating her badly when he becomes very famous, mm. and he winds up losing everything. And I don't want to tell you the ending because no, 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 hopefully, absolutely. but but we'll look forward to seeing that. What's the really timeline nice story. Uh, for for the production of that? Well, it's in pre production, so hopefully within a year or so, a year and a half. You know, films take time. Sure, we're in the process of casting it. The other oh, the other project that got on Page Six was uh, a film called Men of Violence. And it's a gangster martial arts film. But there's a, a lot of humor in it too. And you have to be careful when you do that kind of a film. It's like Pulp Fiction was very violent right. but it also had some funny scenes Absolutely. in it. That's what this is. Men of Violence, it's, it's a, a very different kind of film because it's about uh, a plastic surgeon who has to go up against the mob, a plastic surgeon obsessed with violence, who carries guns and studies martial arts and through some crazy thing, He accidentally kills a mob boss's son. Wow. And the mob boss was a patient of his who told him, you have a friend for life. And then he accidentally kills this mob boss's son, and he has to become the most dangerous man on the planet in order to save himself and his family. Wow! Now, I mentioned that Baby and Max was a little bit uh, of a departure from a lot of Noel's
2: previous work. This film, Men of Violence, that's a little bit of a departure from the kind of work that
11: you usually do. Very Uh, much so. A lot of the
2: work that you do is uh, usually a lot lighter.
11: Yeah, very much so. It it was a hard thing for me to write, even. Hmm. I guess there's a part of me that finds that interesting. I wrote it a while ago. I did early versions some years ago, and I don't even know that I would write it today because I much prefer to put out positive, happy stuff than – there's enough violence it, in the world. But you're done now. Science I'm done. And delivered. I'm yeah, and done. And done and he likes it and other right. people like it. The late Tony Sirico was a very good friend of mine and he read an early version of it and he said, if you don't put me in this, I'll break your legs. <laughs> <laughs> well, <if> Tony Sirico <laughs> makes that it. threat; He means it. Absolutely. <laughs> I was nervous. All the years I knew him, I was always nervous around Tony. I mean, he was a great friend and I put up something like, you know, um, on my Instagram which is at Jeffrey Gurian, by the way, if, if anybody is listening right. who's on. Insta- I- I-A-N. There's a, a little video that we did together when he's talking about comedy. It was comedy matters over here. This hmm. guy, this guy over here, comedy matters. You know, did you, see, I feel like in Tony Sirico's life, there's
2: two groups of people. There's the folks that knew him. Prior to the Sopranos, and there's the folks that knew him once he was on the Sopranos. Which category did you fit in? Prior, I Prior. know
11: I know him from the Columbus Cafe days oh. back in the eighties. Did you ever hear of Columbus? Yes, Cafe? yeah.
2: I, I uh, my friend Richard Bay used to go there. Exactly. I, heard a lot of I saw Richard there every Mark night. Mark Simone used to go there. We were I there. A lot of, uh... I was
11: there every night. I had a table, and it's where I met Danny Aiello and S- Stallone would come in, and Schwarzenegger, uh, the biggest stars. In New York, Bruce Willis was there all the time. Mike Tyson, that's where I met now, him. why was Columbus so cool? Why was it such a spot that celebrities would would flock to and to see and be seen? Why was that? What made it so special? Paulie Herman. Paulie Herman was like the glue. You know, there were two brothers, Paulie and Charlie Herman, and they ran Columbus. It was on 69th Street and Columbus Avenue. Mm-hmm. And whatever that magic was... There was never a place like it before and never since. There's never been a celebrity And What, what hangout happened? In why Manhattan. did it close? I don't know. Paulie went out to LA and opened a place called Ago. And I went out there a couple of times and I was there. You know, I went to that restaurant and it was fantastic. I don't know why it closed eventually in New York. I think uh, things may have just changed. Mm. But I remember the first night I met Mike Tyson, he pushed me out of the way. <laughs> I was talking to Robin Givens. And and anyway, I think and he picked her up and put her over his shoulder and walked up the stairs. I was talking and he just like nudged me out of the way. Ooh, it was was it married at the time? No, I think it was the first night that he met her. Oh, actually. that's wild! That's wild. I think yeah, but I'll never forget that. I was talking to her downstairs. There was this downstairs area, and all of a sudden he comes and like hits me with his shoulder, and, the- and picks her up, throw, puts her over his shoulder, and walks up the stairs. The nice thing about, uh, in your case, if you're on the
2: receiving end of a Mike Tyson knuckle sandwich, is you can do the cosmetic dentistry yourself, <laughs> Exactly.
11: Right? I uh, would have had to, believe me.
2: We're talking with uh, Jeffrey Gurian. He's the host of uh, Comedy Matters TV. You can check out his website, ComedyMattersTV.com. That's ComedyMattersTV.com. com. ton of interesting stuff uh, on there. Now, uh, Tony Sirico, he had this reputation, I think deservedly so, of being a, a tough guy, a little bit of a ruffian. But in your experience as with him, it sounds like he was pretty nice.
11: You know what? He was always kind to me. And we had some funny experiences, one of which turned out on page six. We were about to take a a picture together for the newspaper. And I put my arm around. He goes, no, no, real men don't do that. He made a fist. And he put his fist under my arm and he goes, that's how real men take a picture. And that wound up on page six that Tony Sirico says, real men don't hold each other like that. You know, you were also speaking of Noel Ashman again. It was um,
2: I saw that you were in page six for attending his birthday party as well. He invited me uh, to this. It was at the Hustler Club. I wasn't able to make it, but I must say I've never been to a Hustler Club, let alone for a birthday party. Well, I, there was a, a husu of folks there, Bo Deedle was there ice uh, either iced tea, ice tea ice and, and coco yeah, uh, ice I, 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 yeah. I still can't i can't keep my ices straight how <laughs> was the how was uh, uh, the birthday party I mean you have a birthday party at the hustler club it's got to be pretty unique
11: all his parties are the same they're crowded with people he He gets a tremendous crowd to show up always noel and it's always in another club. I wish he would open a, a new club he actually told me that he's looking for a space because he wants to do a comedy night there and of course i would be doing the comedy night so i'm hoping he gets another thing because he runs great clubs in new york and uh, the party was wild i mean i brought a date so i wasn't looking at whatever right, else you weren't going on strippers or no anything. no not at all no i was just hanging out in the vip area upstairs you had to wear a like a a bracelet in order to get upstairs. Most of the people were downstairs, but then there was this little area upstairs where iced tea was there. And a lot of the old-time New Yorkers, Tommy Puccio, uh, I don't know if you know Tommy Pooch, came up from Miami. I I know who he is, yeah. yeah. He moved up. uh, An old dear friend for a long time had just opened a, a restaurant on 57th Street. He took over a very famous restaurant, and I'm blanking on the name, on 57th around Park Avenue. At, you know, I'm not and sure. So he was there at Matt to Matt and people that were from the nightlife scene from years back, you know, and it was great. It, but, was, it was good. All Noel's parties are good. See, I don't love those hyper-crowded parties. I,
2: I prefer, you know, to be able to walk around, be able to have a conversation with somebody, not immediately be shoulder to shoulder to someone. Mm-hmm. Not that I get claustrophobic, but I don't know. I, I would rather – I prefer a little more space. No, than, I get
11: it, especially these days with COVID. I right. mean, it's weird to be in a crowd uh, last year I, I went to his party and I didn't stay too long. It was so crowded. I don't remember what club it was in, but it was like two thousand people were there and it was shoulder to shoulder. Yeah. And it was really closer to COVID times. Now people are not as worried as they were, but you know I had it really bad. I was I in know, the hospital, yeah. so I'm still very reluctant about going, you know, face to face with sure. people. Jeffrey
2: Gurian is here, comedy writer, stand-up comic, host, author, producer, director, dentist. Check out ComedyMattersTV.com. We'll talk happiness in just a bit and uh, a book that, uh, that Jeffrey has written which uh, might help you find the happiness when it becomes a difficult thing to do. If you have questions about happiness, comedy, or anything at all, you're welcome to give us a call, 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. Jeffrey Gurian in studio here on the other side of Midnight Street.
12: Little song I wrote You might want to sing it Note for note Don't worry Be
13: happy Jeffrey Gurian is here He is an expert in being happy worry, uh,
2: As close to an expert in happiness As I've worry. ever met He's uh, the author of the book Be Happiness, happy. Healing Your Heart By Changing Your Mind A Spiritual and Humorous Approach to achieving happiness, you know, Jeffrey, everyone wants to be happy as opposed to being sad, but you spend a lot of time about thinking about happiness, more so than most, and specifically happiness strategies. I think everybody listening to us has experienced some level of tragedy in their life, some severe, some just the kind of things that everybody deals with. But there's difficult there's, – people have difficult times in their lives. Everybody if you are having a difficult time, uh, whether you're dealing with the loss of a loved one or you're dealing with being lonely or you're dealing with depression, anxiety, whatever the case may be, what are some strategies that you would recommend to people in order to find the happiness, find the silver lining through the clouds?
11: Well, let me a- let me answer that by explaining the title first. It's all about thought, Frank. Um the title says, Healing Your Heart by Changing Your Mind. It's not about heart disease. It's about the fact that from the time we're children, we accumulate pains. We accumulate, every time someone hurts your feelings, lies to you, if you were ever bullied as a child, breaks a promise to you, breaks up with you in a relationship, you carry that inside of you. We're all more sensitive than we realize especially men. Men don't like to cop to being sensitive, and it's very important to own your sensitivity and still feel like a man. It doesn't diminish you. It makes you a better human being to acknowledge your sensitivity. I have no choice. I'm an empath. I feel what you feel. I can't help it, and I had to learn how to own that as a strength and not as a weakness because there was a time in my life if I was with you and you were sad, I was sadder for you than you were. Mm. I overfelt my feelings, so I call these things heart wounds, these pains that we accumulate and they stay with us for our whole life. And you can you can combat them, but they're still inside of you. And what happens is they change, they affect your self-esteem and your self-confidence and they affect every decision you make in your life. Every time you're called upon to make a decision, you think about what to do, right? And who who else's thoughts can you use but your own? And if your thoughts are faulty, if your thoughts are not valid, because you're holding negative thoughts about yourself because of these heart wounds, your decisions are not going to work out well. So it's the reason why people see these patterns in their life, the same bad job over and over again, the same bad relationship over and over again, and the only thing that recurs is them. All the other circumstances change, but you keep showing up. So it's obviously something that you have to change. Now everyone gets obstacles put in their path, unfortunate things that we label bad, And sometimes they turn out to be something good years later. So it's about thought. So let's, uh, as an example, you're trying to get something in your life that you think you deserve, whether it's a job or a relationship or whatever, and you can't seem to get there. You can either look at it as you're the ultimate victim of the universe and nothing works out for you. It works out for other people but not for you. Or you can look at it and say, you know what? I'm not supposed to have that. I'm supposed to have something better than that. And if I got what I thought I wanted, I wouldn't be available for the really good thing that's mm. coming to me. So, But it's about patience. And as human beings, we don't have patience. We want everything right away. Sometimes you have to wait for things. So in my own life, I had to learn that I could control my thought because I stuttered very badly. I talk about that a lot. Sure. I stuttered through my 20s and beyond, even into my 30s. I would block on certain words. And as you can see, I no longer stutter. And I consider it grace. I figured out one day I didn't stutter when I was alone. And you can't have a disability based on your location, right? A man with a limp limps in every room of his house. Mm -hmm. He can't go into a room alone and walk perfectly. But if I could speak fine when I'm alone, theoretically it means there's nothing wrong with me. I made it up. I created it in my head because of negative thoughts that I had about myself. So I worked on myself for years, and I took my mind apart, and I learned that you can control your thoughts. You can release negative thoughts that don't apply to you. Somehow, somewhere along the way, I thought I would never achieve anything. I thought I would never graduate from school, that I would never have a profession, that I would never be married. I even thought I wouldn't even have my own apartment. And I don't know why I had such negative thoughts, I achieved all of those things, you know? Uh, the book is Healing Your Heart by Changing Your Mind, A Spiritual and Humorous Approach to
2: Achieving Happiness. It's available on Amazon and um, a lot of other places where books are, are sold. But, Jeffrey, I think a lot of people may listen to that and understand intellectually exactly what you're saying, the importance of changing yourself to not think negatively or to attract negativity, the uh, the challenge of... N- not meeting negativity with more negativity. But how do you do that in practice? I, I know we want to encourage folks to buy the book, and there are some great strategies in the book. How do you do that in, in in practice, understanding that
11: you need to change yourself to be more positive?
2: How do you do that? How do you make One that One of change? the
11: ways, well, uh, well I'll, 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 excuse me, I'll give you an example. Yeah, I'm stuttering. I haven't stuttered in years. <laughs> One of the ways is a gratitude list. Okay, Now, I'm going to give you two examples because I got two things that happened very recently as a result of this book. And it just shows how you never know what you say that it's going to affect another person's life. I got an email from a doctor in Georgia, a medical doctor, who said that as a result of reading this book, it helped her survive serious heart surgery. And as a result of it, she was involved with a women's health network, and she invited me to be a speaker on that network. And she really credited my book for helping her get through the, the negativity of having heart surgery. The second example was, I, I recently got an email from a woman who heard me on this show. Hmm. Her, her mother heard me on this show. And I don't think she'd mind if I mention her name, Dr. Shirley Chang. And I was so impressed with what she wrote. She said that my book touched her and that my words touched her. And when I looked, oh, and she said that she wanted to send me two books of her own. And I looked her up, and it turns out that she's blind and she's in a wheelchair from the time that she's a child. She's completely disabled, and she writes inspirational books with the help of software, certain software. And she sent me these two books, and I was so moved by it that I wrote back to her. I couldn't thank her enough that my words meant something to her. And then she writes books. That help other people. That's terrific. And she's blind and she writes, uh, one book is called Wisdom, Insight, and Motivation from the Blind Who Sees Far and Wide. And inside she wrote, Dear Jeffrey, Never Fear of Dreaming Big. That's great, Shirley Chang, and that's as a result of being on your oh, well, show. Oh, that's wonderful. I'm glad we could play uh, uh, some role in
2: getting uh, getting the happiness message or Gurianism out to everybody.
11: So, as I was saying, uh, a gratitude list is very important when you're really low. All right, and that happens to everybody. I would be a you know a maniac if I said, oh, I'm happy every day." I go through. I'm a sensitive being. Certain days are not as good as other days. But the int- the interesting thing is we're not mind readers. Every single person in your life that you know, except for your family, there was a day before you met them, mm-hmm. and you had no idea you were going to meet them. And then the next day you meet that person, and your whole life changes because of it. And there's a magic to that. So I make gratitude lists. You know what? I'm very grateful for the fact that I survived a heart attack. I survived COVID, double pneumonia. I was in the hospital both times. And a lot of it was because I maintained a positive attitude. Mm. I was joking with the surgeon when I had the heart attack. It was a Widowmaker heart attack. It was very serious. And on the operating table, I felt him unplugging my heart. I was, I was awake. And I said to the guy, I feel you in my heart. Not in a romantic way, but I feel you in my heart. And the whole surgical crew started to laugh. And he goes, I'll give you more anesthetic. Um, I can't help look for the comedy sure. in a situation. So my gratitude list is I survived these things. I'm healthy. I have friends. I have people who I can call if I need to. I have a house. I have food. My limbs work. You know, a lot of the things that we take for granted. I may not have everything that I want, but I have everything that I need. You know, and those are important concepts to hold on to we tend to lose sight of it because, especially social media, everybody's comparing themselves to everybody else. You know, people only post wonderful things. Sure, right. So it feels like everybody's doing something great except for you, you know, and it's very easy to feel that way. That's one of the bad things about social media. And so I always try and work. My goal is to put out positive energy to the universe in whatever I do. That's why I said I feel weird about men of violence, you know, at – there'll be a lot of people will like that but my preference is to put out positive sure. energy so i teach people how to create a happiness center their own personal happiness center as soon as you leave your house you have no control over what the universe puts in front of you whether you go left or right your whole life will be different if you go left you may fall and skin your knee and if you go right you may find something very valuable but you can't overthink it or you'd be catatonic. Right. Whichever way you go is the way you're supposed to go, right? And so in your home, you have to surround yourself with things that make you happy. So white makes me happy. What Light, bright colors. My carpeting is white. My piano is white. My, most of my furniture is white. And I, I surround myself with pictures of people that I love. I have balloons, always balloons in my house. When people come in, they're like, is it a party? I'm like, always, <laughs> you know, because... Balloons are a symbol of happiness. You never see balloons at a funeral. So, I do this for me. I live alone. I don't do it for other people. Sure. When people come over, they see these things, you know. I have toys, I have crayons, I color. I stay connected to my inner child. Every single one of us has an inner child, and too often they're ignored. When you were a little boy and your friends would come to us and say, hey, can Frank come out to play? And that was so exciting. That's not supposed to stop just Mm -hmm. because you grow up. You know, you may not have the same friends, but you want to have that feeling that you're going to do something exciting. Yeah, it's great advice. Uh, Jeffrey Gurian, you can uh, see some of his work at
2: ComedyMattersTV.com. You are, I think, the dean of New York's comedy scene. I don't know anybody that's been performing, producing, and chronicling the world of comedy in New York longer than you have. You mentioned the uh, Just for Laughs uh, comedy festival, 40th anniversary, and you've been
11: there for 30 years. At least 30 years. I I have 30-year proof, but I I think it was even before that. What is it exactly? It's comedy camp. It's the biggest comedy festival in the world. So all comedians come, all the well-known comedians, but the new comedians too. Variety chooses the 10 top comics to watch. So this year I'll be interviewing Amy Schumer, who's getting the Comedy Person of the Year Award. Hasan Minhaj, uh, who I was just with recently at Radio City. He sold it out. His new show, The King's Jester. He's getting a Stand-Up Comedian of the Year Uh, Taylor Thompson, uh, Tomlinson is winning an award and Jared Carmichael is getting the award for the comedy special of the year. What's interesting, I watched both of these specials yesterday. Comedy has become almost like a therapy session. Taylor Tomlinson. For the performer. Taylor, yes. Taylor Tomlinson came out during her special to admit that she's um, uh, bipolar and talking about mental health. And it was a very brave thing to do. And Jared Carmichael, his special is called Rothaniel, and he came out as being gay during his special. And those are very hard things Absolutely. to talk about. very personal. Very, very personal and more, more intense than almost funny, you know, because it's a comedy special. But the people who do that, it's very interesting to me that they're brave enough to expose themselves. And the audience seems to need to hear that. It's almost like a 12-step program. I do a lot of work with people in 12-step programs where you don't know anybody's name, but you talk about the most personal things in your life, and for some reason, if you tell that to strangers, it helps you get better. Well,
2: I do that uh, on the radio on a, on a daily basis. You know, I, I share the kind of things with uh, people that I've never met and will never meet that I would probably never tell anybody. Mm-hmm. And, and the hopes not only that they will get something out of the story, but I find it to be therapeutic for that
11: very same reason. Very much so. And it's amazing how that works. That, Absolutely. You know why? There's only so many things a human being can experience the names change but our but if we're willing to have the courage to share personal things about ourselves other people can identify in the world of comedy i uh, read recently
2: that you are trying to bring comedy to southampton now this is a time of year where a, a lot of people in really all over the country but especially in the northeast end up going East for the summer, they go out to the Hamptons to Quag to Bridgehampton to East Hampton to East Quag and to Southampton. Why are you specifically targeting Southampton as a place that needs a comedy venue
11: because I, I was walking out there, I was invited to an event a few weeks ago, and I was walking on the street and I had the most unusual experience. I literally felt the stress leave my body i 'm not just saying it i i didn 't know. I didn't have to look over my shoulder once. There was no gangs. I wasn't afraid that anyone was going to mug me. (laughs) There was a feeling of peace. And I actually felt it. And I said, I ran into a lot of people that I knew. I went to have lunch at 75 Main, the most popular place in Southampton, you know, Zach Erdem's place. And it, it was just a wonderful feeling. And I said, you know what? The Hamptons need comedy. Like Amy Schumer was there this week, I think, at a place called The Clubhouse, But there's no comedy club that's Mm. there all the time. You know, people may come out and perform occasionally, but people need to laugh, Frank. After those last three years that we've been through, people are so stressed. Laughter is a healing thing. It's really true that laughter is the best medicine. And I just felt, I don't know, I have this intuitive thing that I need to be in Southampton. So I was meeting with a few people, looking for a venue. One of the hotels already said that they're interested, but... There's another place. I can't say it yet because there's, sure. there's no deal, but I think it's going to happen. The, the thing about the Hamptons, and I, I've spent a little bit of time out there. I know a lot of
2: people that uh, go out there not just for the summer but the whole, the whole year, and a lot of folks are very generous to invite me over there. I, there's two things that strike me negatively about the Hamptons, and I enjoy going out there. Don't get me wrong, and it's beautiful out there. There's some great restaurants. But one is the traffic. I, I oh, feel yeah. like whenever time you're going out there, it, you can't beat the traffic. I, I feel like uh, the traffic will always get you, and it's very frustrating to sit in that amount of traffic for that many hours. Yeah,
11: sometimes. it can it can take away all the pleasure of the weekend, especially when you're coming home in that traffic. But that's mostly if you're going all the way out to Montauk. The further out you go, it seems the more traffic you hit on twenty seven. But Southampton, I didn't really have much of a problem. Great, I, I I hit more traffic on my way out there than when I actually get out to like exit seventy, you know, on the LIE. Uh, it's more it's more around here that I hit traffic. The other thing, what's the other thing I, that I, bothers I, you? I feel there's a little bit of
2: pretentiousness. But that, I was going to say that word, pretentiousness. A, a, out there, That's the out word. there
11: in the hand. Yes, of I,
2: course. I, I don't feel like a lot of the restaurants, a lot of the bars that you go into have this egalitarian atmosphere. Hey, come on in. We're all one of the guys. Not at I feel all. like everyone's very aware of their status. status. exactly. They're very into who gets in where, who's you know getting a $22 martini, and who do, who's not good enough to get one of these two, $22 martinis. And I, I find that a little annoying, you know, just because you know i might be a regular guy not a not not a multi-millionaire or uh you know a hedge fund magnate or something you know i mean i do i'd like to be treated like a human being too and i feel like that's an, that's a, an attitude that is that is more common
11: in the hamptons than it is in other places it comes with the territory you know <laughs> john katsimatidis there was a story in the newspaper that he bought a table at 75 Main in advance so that his table would always be ready for him when he came I, in. I, he,
2: actually, he, t- he mentioned that to right. and, yeah.
11: I, and I'm sure he, that he can afford it. Right. So it's okay. And what he did with this station is a wonderful oh, thing. I love WABC and whatever he did, it's, a, it's, it's one hit after the next. Every show is a killer show. I,
2: I, you don't have to uh, other than um you know thanking God for my wife and my son and my good health. I thank God for John Katsmatidis every day. He's one of the handful of people that I've met in my life that actually has changed the course of my life. I'm eternally grateful mm-hmm. to him, and uh, I've thanked him profusely r- 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 many, many times. And uh, and it, absolutely, I, I completely echo your your sentiments. All right.
11: And I got to tell him that at the PAL luncheon a couple of months oh, ago. wonderful. It was recently. Good, yeah, good, yeah, good, good, good. Great.
2: And that's another thing. That's something that he doesn't need to do. He and Margo, they spend all this time and effort – putting together these PAL luncheons that are are just the bee's knees. People love it. All right, we're going to continue with Jeffrey Gurian in just a moment. He's a comedy writer, stand-up comic, host, author, producer, and dentist. You could check out his website, ComedyMattersTV.com. If you search Jeffrey Gurian on YouTube, uh, there's a ton of interesting stuff on there from Comedy Matters as well as some other interesting things that Jeffrey's been involved in throughout the course of the last few decades. This is The Other Side of Midnight, 800 848 If you want to comment, one 800 848 Straight ahead. It's The
0: Other Side of Midnight with Frank Marano. I,
14: I love the colorful
0: you wear. And the way the sunlight plays
14: upon her head. I hear the sound of a gentle wind on the wind that lifts her perfume through the air.
2: I'm picking up good vibrations. The Beach Boys singing about good vibrations. Uh, When Jeffrey Gurian is in studio, there's good vibrations along the whole floor. He's a comedy writer, a stand-up comic, a host, an author, a producer, a director. And uh, you can check out some of his work at ComedyMattersTV.com. As uh, we mentioned a little earlier, these days he's writing two films in uh, collaboration with... Our friend Noel Ashman, who's been a guest on this show
11: as well, can we get a part for a radio voice in one of Absolutely. these? Absolutely, we got to fit you in somewhere. Thank you. Yeah, it, I, I, I don't know if it'll be Men of Violence, but certainly in Baby and Max. What I am looking
2: for is something that will be. Minimal work, minimal time, but that still gets me a credit and an invite to the premiere party. Absolutely. That's what I'm looking for. Yeah,
11: that, that's a given.
2: Um, all right. Which, uh, hey, by the way, we were talking about comedy and your search for a venue in Southampton.
11: You have an upcoming comedy show coming up in Scarsdale, right? Yeah. And it's very interesting to have a, a new comedy club. You know, it's it's very hard to open a comedy club. And this friend of mine, Joe Matarise, opened up a comedy club in Scarsdale on Garth Road. And I'm in the very... The second show that's going to happen, like it's opening on July twenty eighth with some other comics, and on August fourth, which I think is a Thursday, I'm opening for Ophira Eisenberg, who's a pretty well known comic, and it's going to be amazing. Right. So how can people um, get
2: tickets? How can people go?
11: Uh, on the well, the name of the club is called B Side. The letter B, S I D E, B Side Comedy in Scarsdale. And for all our Westchester friends, it would be great if they come. It's a club that holds about 60 people. It's an intimate club. So if you call early, you can still get tickets. Great. You can't just show up. I think you need tickets in, in advance. But I'm very excited about it. My kids are going to come. Uh, they live in Westchester. Oh, And really? I have a lot of friends in Westchester. Yeah, I'm allowing my kids. I'm loosening up. You know, i <laughs> always felt awkward. I'm like, do kids want their father to be a comedian? You know, I don't know. You know, I just want them... I always want my children to respect Your children me. are all adults. Though, right, my right? children are adults, but I, but I still think of my kids like sure. Carmine. Right, right, you right. Know, right. Like, uh, you know.
2: Unable to formulate speech. Yeah, like yes. they're
11: little babies. Like I want to pick them up, <laughs> right. and they're Fair women enough. already, and I can't pick them up anymore, but that's how I think of them in my mind. I think that happens with everybody. You think of your kids as little, you know. I want to protect them. I don't want them to hear me cursing or anything.
2: Understood. Understood. Now, hey, you mentioned Woody Allen a little earlier. He um, did this uh, this interview with Alec Baldwin recently. He's got uh, an, an, a new film out called uh, Rifkin's Festival, I believe it is. It's on streaming. He had another one uh, called uh, A Rainy Day in New York a year or two ago. There's this whole new group of folks, and we didn't hear much about this for a while, but there's this whole new group of folks that won't watch Woody Allen films or patronize anything that Woody Allen has to do with because of the allegations involving uh, he and his family and things like that. You've known Woody Allen a little bit uh, over the years, worked with him a bit. Um, what do you think of, of that, of people choosing not to patronize someone's comedy or their work, even if they may like it, because of their, their personal behavior, their personal
11: scandal? Well, it's tied in with cancel culture, right? You know, it's basically the same thing. I look at Woody from only a comedy perspective. I, I don't know. I, I know the allegations. I know the story. When I met Woody Allen, I was a kid and I was writing comedy and he sat with me for two nights and he read my material. I contrived a way to meet him. He was my idol comedy wise. This is a long time ago. And It was unbelievable for me to meet him. And years later, when I got friendly with Jack Rollins, who was his manager for many years, he said it was very unusual for Woody to do something like that, to invite me to come back to the theater to sit with him so he could read my material. And he said to me, you know, my dream was that he would say, Jeffrey, you're amazing. Let's make movies together. That's not what happened. Mm -hmm. But what he did say was that your comedy is very visual and you should think of making a film out of it, which I did some years later. I did some short films for the Toyota Comedy Festival, very strange films called The Men Who Series, which is on my YouTube channel, about men who do very unusual things, like men who take a pitchfork to the movies, men who enjoy, <laughs> men who enjoy Latin dancing with tools. I'm sure you've seen a lot of <laughs> I, Latin absolutely. dancing with tools in your yeah. day. But I had, the guy who did, I had a guy who did the tango with a wrench that was unbelievable. <laughs> and, uh, you know, Peter Dinklage was in those films one of the greatest stars in the world From, was in uh, a, Game of Thrones a, Game now. of Thrones was in a film I did called Men Who Dance Where They're Not Supposed To <laughs> and it was you know my artist made up a parking sign an exact replica of a New York parking sign but instead of saying no parking on Tuesday and Thursday, it said no dancing Tuesday and Thursday. <laughs> and we put it up on Broadway and 25th Street and accidentally left it up when we left. We did, We forgot to take it down. And it wound up in the newspapers because drivers were going crazy, pulling up to the sign and saying, what is this no dancing? <laughs> you know, in New York, you can't park anywhere. You have to be careful right. that you don't get a ticket, right? And here's this no dancing sign. <laughs> and I, I was so nervous. I thought I was going to get in trouble, but I didn't. You know yeah, that reminds me actually the uh, stories of the dancing with the power tools and
2: things of that nature of uh, your other book "Man Robs Bank with His Chin" and other unusual stories missed by the mainstream media. Now I know that you were a writer for the Weekly World News, which mm-hmm. is the world's foremost news publication. They still, I believe, publish online. But why do certain stories that seem pretty interesting? end up getting missed by the
11: mainstream media. And how do you find them? I stay up all night, Frank. I I search the world for the most unusual stories. And um, like tap dancing for the criminally insane. You know, the best way to explain it is to do it as a story. So if you'll indulge me. Please. Paris, France. Doctors at a home for the criminally insane in France have accidentally stumbled on a technique they say will calm down even the most violent of criminals. Mayor Adams, are you listening? Tap dancing. Dr. Abraham View noticed that while inmates were watching an old Shirley Temple movie starring Bill Bojangles Robinson, every time Robinson danced, even the most violent of inmates suddenly became very calm. <laughs> Vune decided to choose murderer cannibal Roland Bife as a test subject. Standing six-five and weighing over 300 pounds, Bife had killed and cannibalized his own parents over a pack of chewing gum. Reluctant at first to dance at all, Bife finally gave in, and within weeks, the good doctor had Bife dancing up a storm. He surprisingly light on his feet for such a big man, said the doctor. In explaining why this works, the doctor explained that something about the rhythmic tapping of the feet making contact with the floor Creates a vibration through their bodies to just the right part of the brain and calms them down. Baeff now seeing the error of his ways says, "If only I hadn't eaten my parents, <laughs> I could have been the next Monsieur Bojangles." <laughs> so it's those kind of stories that get missed by mainstream media. Yeah, no, I can't. That's the kind of story that should be highlighted everywhere. Of course, man, you know, man uh, arrested for for opening his own bank. Now this is this is an unusual story. If I could find, yeah, yeah. Uh, Farmingville, Wyoming. Ed Hearn was taken into custody this week for allegedly trying to convince his neighbors to give him all their money because he was opening a new bank. Neighbors became suspicious about Ed's bank, which is what he proposed to call it, when he promised to pay interest but wouldn't say how much. (laughs) Al Biggs, a local entrepreneur, said that Hearn had taken several shoeboxes, taped them together, and tried to pass them off as safety deposit boxes And that's when he decided to call the authorities to find out whether Ed's bank was really on the level or not. Federal undercover agents swooped in, opened an account, and actually rented one of Ed's shoeboxes before leading him away in handcuffs. More on that on our later broadcast. See, that's the kind of thing that uh, it has economic implications,
2: it has regulatory implications, maybe even uh, political uh, implications. That's
11: that's the kind of stories we should be seeing more of in the news. The last story: elderly man tours Europe on pogo stick. <laughs> now, this guy is 87 years old, Armen Karugian. He always wears a tuxedo, right? And he's managed to 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 hop his way through Western Europe on a pogo stick carrying nothing more than a knapsack on his back. And he feels that athletes don't dress well during their performance of their sport. He said the least they could do is wear a sport jacket. That's why they call it a sport jacket, (laughs) because it should be worn during sports. Most athletes come out very poorly dressed in shorts and (laughs) sneakers. This man hopped on a pogo stick all across Europe wearing a tuxedo. Now, that's These are the impressive. Kind of, that yeah, is, that impressive. is impressive. That right? is impressive, Absolutely impressive. So when I see a story like that, I jot it down, and I say, this needs to be in this book. So it's a whole book of stories called Man Robs Bank With His Chin, and other unusual stories missed by mainstream media. And it features quotes from Richard Lewis from Curb Your Enthusiasm, Nick Kroll... And Colin Jost from Saturday oh, Night Live.
2: a sure. uh, fellow Staten Islander. Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, a, a partner, I believe, in the Staten Island Ferry Staten Island Ferry, with, Yeah, I'm uh, with our f- own
11: owner, I mean, John Katzimatidis. And also, and uh, Pete yeah, Davidson. Uh, Pete Davidson and uh, Paul Italia, that owns the stand. I was just down there the other night trying to find him. I wanted to find out what's going on with that ferry.
2: Yeah, because uh, they're
11: going to make it into a big comedy club. That's going to be pretty exciting. You think that's going to do well?
2: And do they have a place to
11: uh, that where they're going to keep it? I know that was sort of up in the air for a little while. They keep moving it around. I don't know if it's in a stable place, but these are guys that can make this happen. Hmm. Paul Italia is a, is like a force to be reckoned with, and they all have connections. That's pretty cool. Yeah. And I'm sure that it's going to happen. And I want to be. I want to perform on that boat. Since the last, I'll come see you on yeah. that boat. That's for sure. Since the last time you were
2: here, we are now airing not only in the New York area but on the Nevada Talk Radio Network and on some great stations in Nevada. Uh, Nevada obviously has some great performance venues. Uh, Las Vegas is probably the best known, but also uh, Lake Tahoe and Reno, which are known for performances. Have you ever done any performing out there in Nevada?
11: Not in the no. You know, I don't tour. I really don't tour. I stay mostly in New York. I performed in L.A. I performed in Georgia. That was a trip. I did. Uh, I was doing the improv in Georgia. And then I called uh, my friend Shontay Wayans from the Wayans family. Oh, sure. Which, I, way, is he a Wayans brother? No, Shontay is, is, a is a girl. She's a, a niece. She's oh, a niece. She's a, niece. She's a Wayans the niece. The daughter of one of the sons. Okay. Uh, it's, a, it's a very big family. And she got me a spot at a place called the Uptown Comedy Corner. And she said to me, I don't know if you're going to want to go because even black comics are nervous to go there on a Sunday night. It's a black- <laughs> I was the only white guy in the club, and it was amazing, and I loved it. And I walked in. The whole club turned around to look at me, and they said they thought I must have been a Hollywood agent looking for talent because no white guys ever come in there. It. But it was That's fantastic. Great. That's great. Hey, it went great. It's going to feel like it's over
2: 100 degrees today. It's going to be pretty warm. Uh, in places like Nevada, I can't imagine how warm it is. Any Jeffrey Gurian tips on staying cool? I know you had a harrowing experience walking around Reese Park yesterday in the Rockaways. But if folks are looking for a pro tip on keeping cool during a heat wave, what do you recommend?
11: Well, look how I'm dressed tonight. You never good. see me this. I, I'm always in a sport. I wear a sport jacket on the beach. That's how sick I am. You know. But I wore a cut off thing tonight because it's 100 degrees out and. You know, if you have a heart condition, I didn't even think of that yesterday. I mean, thank God my heart's been fine. I went to the cardiologist recently to make sure I could drive up to Canada, and he said, oh, you're in great shape, you're fine. But, you know, if you have anything wrong with you, stay out of the heat. That's the best thing. Stay in the – if you have air conditioning. Thank God some genius invented air conditioning. Absolutely. Can you, you imagine remember what it was like 100 years ago? Oh, when I was a little kid, I was in a car that would no – we used to pray for a wind. Like everyone <laughs> would just drive with the windows open just hoping that there would be a breeze. You know, I've explored the question of what became of the Catskills
2: and why the Catskills was such a destination not only for performers but for, for vacationers. And now it's certainly less so. It's made maybe a little bit of a comeback with the casino that's there now, but it's certainly not the destination that it was 40, 50, 60 years ago. Almost people used to describe it in some respects, like folks travel to the Jersey Shore or the Hamptons. Some people have said that it's because of air conditioning.
11: Well, it's amazing you brought that up. I'm going to break some news. I'm working on a TV show about that era. Neat. I just got hired to write on on a TV show about... The Catskills and grow singers and you're all gonna those come hotels. back and we'll uh, we'll review that soon. I'm breaking that news right here. I love <laughs> it. ComedyMattersTV.com. Jeffrey Gurion, Always a treat. Always a treat to be on with you, Frank. Thank right. you so much for having the me. The pleasure is all mine. To be continued.
0: This is the other side of midnight with Frank Morano.
1: They're running a strange program, y'all.
0: Now here's Frank Morano.
2: Everyone, this is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. How about that, um, that uh, Jeffrey Gurian? I get such a kick out of him. I really do. If, you're, if this is your first time hearing Jeffrey Gurian, do yourself a favor on the YouTube. You could search the video. It's a 14-minute documentary, very short. Just search who the F, and you could spell it, who the F is Jeffrey Gurian. It is one of the best short documentaries that kind of captures his essence in in a in a nutshell. All right. It is Monday. That means it is time for us to give a pat on the back to the people, places, and entities that deserve one. That means it's time for The
0: Other Side of Midnight presents
2: commendations. I must begin with a group of teenagers. At Port Jefferson High School, these teenagers are volunteers with the Port Jefferson Fire Department, and they responded to a call for a structure fire at their classmates' house. So you have this group of high schoolers in Long Island. They traded their graduation robes for firefighter gear last week when a fire broke out near their school. So the Port Jeff High School students had just walked across the stage to receive their diploma and were taking photos with their families After the ceremony, when they were alerted to a nearby fire, immediately, the teens, identified by their principal as Ryan Parmigiani, Kasumi Lane Stasek, Hunter Volpe, Andrew Patterson, Shane Hardig, and Peter Rizzo, dropped what they were doing, and they rushed to the Port Jefferson Fire Department firehouse to help with the fire. So these youngsters, who are all either 17 years old or 18 years old, are volunteers with the Port Jefferson Fire Department. They were still in their gowns. They had their diplomas with them. They stripped off their gowns, and um, they went and embarked on this heroic act. And what made their heroic actions even more impressive was the fact that the students, two of them riding riding in the first engine to the scene and the other four on a ladder truck, they responded to a call for a structure fire at one of their classmates' houses. So the fire chief, Christian Newbert, revealed that the classmate was also just returning home from the graduation ceremony. That's how Port Jefferson is. It's a very small community. My, uh, my wife used to live in Port Jefferson, and she I think that's where she got her cat, Bethsheba. She found Bethsheba in the streets of uh, Port Jefferson. So these strike me as very impressive young men. And uh, I am very impressed with them. I'm happy to give them a commendation. I'm also happy to give a commendation to the Seattle Mariners. The Seattle Mariners went on a a hot streak that's hotter than the weather. They won 14 games straight. Not only is that more of a winning streak than anybody in baseball has had this year, that is only one game shy of the record, so um, you're going to win 14 games straight. Uh, straight, you're getting a commendation from me. So, congratulations to the Seattle Mariners. I I want to commend Elisha Elisha Dickin. We now know. Some more details of what occurred last Sunday in Indiana. There was a shooting at a mall in Indiana, not yesterday, but the previous Sunday, that left three victims dead. And it was Mr. Dickon who killed the shooter and stopped the attack. Officials called the actions of this armed civilian, quote, nothing short of heroic noting that the gunman likely would have killed many more people had he not intervened. So this is exactly how this is supposed to work. Now, we can have a debate about gun safety, gun violence, gun control, gun restrictions. If you're going to be a legal gun owner, I think the best use of that gun is to protect people. And uh, who knows how many more people would have died, but for the quick thinking of 22-year-old Elishia Dickens, Commendation to you, Mr. Dickin. I want to give a commendation as well to the Atlantic City Boardwalk. The Atlantic City Boardwalk has topped the travel website voters list of the best boardwalks in America. Coming in second was Long Beach on Long Island, so we'll give them a a runner's-up commendation. Santa Monica Pier and Venice Beach Boardwalk tied for third. The Floating Boardwalk in Idaho came in fourth. And fifth was the Myrtle Beach Boardwalk and Promenade. Uh, To me, it's not even a contest. Atlantic City's boardwalk is the longest boardwalk in the world. It was the first boardwalk in the world. It's still the most interesting. It's no surprise to me that it's the best boardwalk in America. Congratulations to you. Uh, Speaking of the best and speaking of New Jersey, I want to give a commendation to the Summit Diner. I don't think I've ever been to the Summit Diner. I'm embarrassed to say this because I am a diner fan. And one of the best things about New Jersey, and I like New Jersey. I have sort of a love-hate relationship with New Jersey. The worst thing about it is the jug handles. The next to worst thing about it is they don't let you pump your own gas. One of the best things about New Jersey is the diners. This is a, a state that has some wonderful diners. In New York City, diners are going extinct. They're an endangered species in New York City. In New York City, you go to a diner, they charge you $15 for a milkshake. They don't keep it open 24 hours, uh, and they call it a diner. I mean, it's no, it's not a diner. The way what Manhattan calls a diner is not a diner. There's one, maybe two diners, real diners left in Manhattan. They're few and far between. There's more than two, but there's a handful. You get the point. So with over 600 diners in the Garden State... They are the diner capital of the world, New Jersey. So, the Patch took the top 37 best diners in New Jersey and held a vote with their criteria and the results were very clear. The Summit Diner in New Jersey was named the best diner in the entire state. It's an institution, opened in 1928 and started serving out of a railroad car. In 1938, it is the epitome of a Jersey diner. You walk into the Summit Diner, and I have not done so, and I promise you I will. You walk into the Summit Diner, and the atmosphere, the smell, it takes you back in time. It's like a walk in history. So it's famous, they're famous for their corned beef hash. They also are uh, very well known, as most Jersey institutions are, for the Taylor Ham and Egg Cheese Sandwich. And uh, they, are, they have a, a very robust diner menu as well. The best diner in the entire state of New Jersey. Congratulations to the Summit Diner. I want to give a commendation to Sydney McLaughlin. Sydney McLaughlin broke her own world record again for the 400-meter hurdles. She has repeatedly smashed the world record to smithereens, rendering her rivals into background noise, essentially, as she pushes the boundaries of what seems even possible for a human. She was already an Olympic gold medalist, reigning Olympic gold medalist. So on Friday, she broke the world record for the fourth time in two years for 400-meter hurdles. Very impressive. Very impressive. Uh, Sidney McLaughlin, I do commend you. I must also commend Andrew Russell, a postal worker in Colorado who is being hailed as a hero after he rescued a little girl from inside a parked car after her mother passed out. July 16th, postal carrier Andrew Russell was on the job When he heard screams coming from inside a vehicle, he noticed a car was pulled off on the side of the road. There was a funny noise, almost like an engine was revving. And then he heard a child's voice that sounded pretty hysterical. So the second he heard that, he immediately runs over. He finds there's a six-year-old girl in the car, unable to get out. Inside was a woman, unconscious. And the child is freaking out because she thinks her mother is dead. Apparently, um, the 25-year-old mother had taken a fentanyl pill before getting behind the wheel. So, as she was driving, she got tired, pulled to the side of the road where she essentially passed out. That's when her daughter started crying. This Andrew Russell didn't think twice about acting when he heard that crying. So, she he rescued her and got her out of this car. So... Um, This guy is a real hero. And, you know, it's one more example of a hero postal worker. The postal workers get such a bad rap. I love the men and women of the U.S. Postal Service. They are the true unsung heroes in America today. They are expected to deliver mail in all sorts of crazy weather. They're expected to do it accurately. And you know what? In spite of the reputation they have... More often than not, what you're trying to send through the U.S. Postal Service arrives there. And I have been very frustrated that they don't always get their due. But when somebody like Andrew Russell goes above and beyond to save a six-year-old girl, I think um, it makes it easy to see how heroic so many of these postal workers are. I want to commend North Carolina, the top state for business. That's right. The Tar Heel State's number one on CNBC's annual ranking of business competitiveness. So 2022 is the first year it has finished number one. And uh, they're doing everything right, apparently, in terms of creating and fostering an environment for business. One of the factors, by the way, they put partisanship aside. Democratic Governor Roy Cooper signed a deal in March with a Vietnamese electric vehicle manufacturer to build a $2 billion factory in the state. The state Senate president and the House Speaker, both Republicans, they were close at hand. The three of them, one Democrat, two Republicans, worked together. I'll tell you, I think I've said this before. Roy Cooper, whether Biden runs in 2024 or not, Roy Cooper could be very formidable. As a presidential candidate. And he's someone that if he ever were to be the Democratic nominee, he'd win the election. Because he can do what a lot of other Democrats can. He can win in red states. I want to commend lager beer. Science shows that lager, drinking lager beer can actually be good for you so long as you do it in moderation. According to a new study, drinking one lager a day can be very Good for you. That's because lager appears to increase the diversity of your gut bacteria. This, according to these researchers, can reduce the risk for some diseases. So according to a press release that was shared by the American Cancer Society, our gastrointestinal tracts house trillions of microorganisms. These microorganisms can direct directly impact Our body's well-being. Additionally, scientists say the more bacterium types we have present, the lower our chance of contracting chronic diseases. And so, lager evidently adds to the diversity of bacteria. I'll tell you what I'm going to do when I get home. I'm not joking. I'm having a lager. I'm not a big beer drinker. I I drink beer, I don't know, uh, rarely. I mean, a little more during the summer. I'm having a lager when I get home because I want to add to the diversity of my bacteria. And finally, I want to commend Botswana, the country of Botswana. What they have done is a model for every country in the world in terms of how to handle diseases and public health crises. And trust me, if you look at what the United States has done in terms of botching the handling of COVID, botching the handling of monkeypox, I think maybe we want to take a a, a page or two from Botswana's playbook. Botswana has cut the HIV transmission rate in children from 40%. Understand what I'm saying. 40% of children in Botswana had HIV to 1%. They've gone from 40% to 1%. The WHO has called this a groundbreaking Achievement. This is absolutely true. This is absolutely true. And uh, this is really wonderful news. It, there's nothing worse than seeing a child born with HIV, a child born HIV positive. And unfortunately, that used to happen in almost one out of every two children in Botswana. Now, 99 out of 100 babies in Botswana are not born with HIV. They still have a, a HIV rate that's way too high. And hopefully they'll continue to get a hold of that. But this transformation is absolutely remarkable. And Botswana, I do commend you. If you have thoughts on anyone that I have commended, you can give us a call. 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. We'll take your calls straight ahead.
0: It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
2: Once in a generation talent, an incredible voice and somebody who uh, largely because of issues with substance abuse was taken from us way too soon. And uh, the fact that she left behind this kind of musical imprint on on the world um, is at such a young age is really impressive, quite impressive, if you ask me. 800-848-9222. If you want to comment on anybody that I have commended, that's 1-800-848-9222. Let me say hello to Leo in Westchester, who's been very patiently holding. Hello, Leo. I think Leo's asleep.
12: Leo's asleep. Hello. Wake up, Leo. Psst, Leo. Wake <laughs> up.
2: All right, Let, let's leave Leo on. Right? and when he wakes up, he can comment on whatever we're doing. Um, no, 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 no. Leave him up. We'll, we'll we'll hear his breathing. We want to make sure he's okay. We'll just leave him up there, and uh, let's say hello to Ralph. Ralph is in New Jersey. I know oh Ralph's God. awake.
13: Well, i I listened I, and accompanied for as we say, in the uh, you know U.S. Army. Love it. Uh, here I am. Okay, so I will also want to commend or give a commendation to the country of Canada for the warm welcome of the uh, you know Michael Christ, the Supreme Pontiff, uh, Pope Francis. Uh, what is the his uh, number? The eleven, ten. For, but but Pope Francis, nevertheless, give a warm welcome to the uh, the Pope. Uh, and I wish for the Pope to visit the Philippines again because, you know, you have, um, you know, the, the people waiting for you when you visit us again there in the country. And hopefully you can have a, a fruitful dialogue with President Marcos. By the way, is it possible for you to, to interview President Marcos?
2: I, and the, I uh, would love to do that. How is his English? <laughs> do you know? Talk to Cindy Adams. Thank you. Thank you, Ralph. Why does does Cindy Adams have some sort of special um special connection with with President Marcos of the Philippines? If she does, that's that's news to me. I don't know. Uh all right. Hey, I did wanna I did wanna comment on this and this is where I know we're we're a national show now, but ultimately Hey Leo, are you awake? Yeah, I'm awake. I'm awake. Oh, okay, Leo. All right, we, we caught you snoozing there for a while. What's on? Oh, sorry. It's okay. I, I've put more people to sleep than uh, than than Sominex. Uh What's on your mind today, Leo? Uh,
15: my comment was to the uh, to the uh, subject of, about all the soldiers coming from uh, with the PTSD and so and so in the French military there for the last two hundred years, what's called Foreign Legion. It's uh, it's from a. Uh, Basically, our hired soldiers, which goes through brutal brainwashing uh, training, they are on the level of our, I don't know, Navy SEALs or or, uh, or uh, Air Force One, and uh, they are actually sent in small groups because they, uh, they communicate with the hand signals. They are from different countries. They don't speak one language to the most dangerous combat uh, missions, and uh, you know, to have uh, the, there is about ten thousand of them in the military and in the French, and uh, it's just ten percent of what they go through. Means they was they was from hundred thousand people who was trying to get in, just ten thousand went through. So they are really elite on on level of our elite uh, elite forces.
2: All right, well, I, I think um, I'm not sure what else I would really have to add there, Leo, but uh, that certainly sounds pretty interesting to me, okay? I, makes sense to me. Joe and Ron Conkema. Hello, Joe.
16: Hey, Frank, I hope you had a great weekend. Thank you. You uh, too. Yeah, I was pretty relaxed. Nicole up. what a nice guy. I have to come in uh, give him a compliment. And also,
2: He's I, on I thin ice about- around here, Joe. Don't get too friendly with him. stop Uh, anyway uh, your combinations Uh, I would like to uh, the people
16: that defended uh, Lee Belden when he almost got stabbed on that uh, campaign uh, I don't know if you read about in the paper yeah
2: I started the show by talking about that and I I, I talked about it on Friday I came in late
16: tonight so I didn't catch it I'll catch it on the the, uh, podcast but uh, what a shame thank God he had the strong will to stop that guy he looks like a real nut
2: job, you know well, and that's what I what I began the show with Joe uh, and th- and look, I agree with you I think uh, anybody that interferes with somebody that's trying to stab someone else and they do so especially without a weapon, I think that's very admirable that's to be commended and so I, I join you in your commendation. I think the real shame of it is that uh, you know you you call, call this guy a nut job, and I can see why. I call this guy a very disturbed, decorated veteran battling with serious illness, serious mental illness and alcoholism. That's what I see. And I think that that's the real tragedy that we're facing as a country. I don't want to repeat everything that I said at the beginning of the show, but I, I stand by that. I'll tell you, uh, somebody who was a man among men is the former chairman of the state conservative party, Michael Long. Now, if you're listening around the country, maybe you don't understand the how the minor parties work in New York, but in New York, the minor parties have traditionally been very powerful, less so these days, although the Conservative Party still is powerful. The Conservative Party came about in 1962, and over the last 70 years they have become really a political powerhouse in terms of providing a a voice to conservatives that... Because remember, in 1962, all three of the ballot access parties in New York were liberal. You had the Democratic Party, which was liberal. You had the Liberal Party, which was liberal. And you had the Republican Party, which was liberal. The leaders of the Republican Party at that time... Were super liberal Republicans, Nelson Rockefeller, Jacob Javits, and uh, people like uh, like John Lindsay, and so I'm not saying cons- I'm not praising conservatism for the sake of praising conservatism, but as a political organizer, and I've spent the bulk of my life wor- in working in minor party politics as a volunteer, but working in it nonetheless. What they were able to achieve. Was extraordinary that even if you're not conservative, you have to recognize the political significance of what the conservative party has been able to do so much so that since 1980, no Republican running for statewide office has won without the conservative party line. So that's that's pretty, pretty. That's something. But Mike Long was a man among men. I knew Mike very well. The guy was, I, I mentioned this to Dominic Carter last night. I've known Mike, I think, since the mid-90s, late, ni- late 90s. And there are not a lot of people that have been in politics for 50 years, 60 years, that you can say they've never lied to you. Mike Long is one. Mike Long, you may not agree with him. You may not like his politics. The guy is as honest as the day is long. The guy was tough. Um, He was a Marine and fell in love politically and intellectually with Barry Goldwater. And then he started this long ascendancy in the conservative party. They, there's a book, Fighting the Good Fight by George Marlin. It's about 20 years old now, but it's really interesting. It's all about the history of the New York State Conservative Party. It's a wonderful book if you're interested in New York politics or conservative party or or conservative politics nationally. And the chapter that they have on Mike Long is very appropriately titled True Grit, Mike Long at the Helm. Mike has been the chairman, was the chairman of the conservative party from 1988 until he retired in February of 2019. The longest serving state party chairman of his in history. But he wasn't just into politics. He was into public service. He was the chairman of the community school board in East New York. He was the first registered conservative to serve on the New York City Council. What happened was. There was a conservative who was elected by the name of uh, Vincent Riccio, councilman-at-large in Brooklyn, and then ultimately Riccio went to prison. He was, went to prison for accepting kickbacks. And back in those days, the other council members would pick the replacement, but it had to be of the same party of the person that was elected. And because Vincent Riccio was elected as a conservative, they then selected Michael Long, who had run for state senate, A couple of times, once as a conservative running against a Democrat and a Republican back in 1966, and then once as a conservative running against only a Democrat. He was a brilliant guy and a street guy and a guy who, because he had a very Brooklyn way of speaking, sometimes people would underestimate his intellect. But you'd only underestimate Michael Long's intellect once. He was a guy that stuck with his guns. In 1993, his daughter, he, they didn't endorse Rudy Giuliani in 1993. And his daughter managed the campaign for Rudy's conservative opponent. Now, think of that. Think of the onions that it takes when, my, when David Dinkins is running against Rudy Giuliani. And it's every difference in the world of um, the difference between Giuliani and Dinkins. And Mike Long ran his own candidate. You know the onions that it takes? You know the people that would have been ticked off at him if the conservatives would have cost Giuliani the mayoralty back in 1993? By the way, that was largely Rudy's decision. Rudy decided he wanted the Liberal Party line instead of the Conservative Party line. I think it was probably the right decision. There's a lot more votes in New York City on the Liberal Party line than the Conservative line. Four years later, and this is where Mike Long was always so able to balance Practicality and uh, principle four years later he had seen the transformation that had taken place in New York City so four years later, they still couldn't endorse Rudy but because Rudy was still in favor of partial birth abortion and he was or having to be legal and he was in he wanted the liberal line but they ran no candidate. that was their way of saying, all right, we love what this guy's done even though we can't endorse him." And I remember when Giuliani was running for U.S. Senate in 2000, everyone, this was going to be Giuliani versus Hillary Clinton. This is going to be one of the most talked about political races in history. And Mike Long, to his credit, said, all right, we're on board. We're willing to endorse Rudy Giuliani. He's only got to do two things. One, not take the Liberal Party line. And two, oppose partial birth abortion. Those were the only things Mike Long wanted. And uh, Rudy couldn't make that commitment, and he was prepared to go with another candidate. They were prepared to go their own direction. Ultimately, Rudy didn't run, and they ultimately backed Rick Lazio. It didn't matter. Hillary won anyway. But um, the guy was incredibly intelligent. He was incredibly tough. He's incredibly honest. And he is somebody that I was uh, I consider a friend. I worked... Um, against Mike in a lot of different campaigns. I worked with Mike in a lot of different campaigns. You always would prefer to be on the same side as Mike rather than opposite Mike, whatever party you're you're in. And uh, he's somebody that I'm really going to miss. He served in the city council, board member of the American Conservative Union for 27 years, He was a member of the board of directors of the Cathedral Club of Brooklyn, secretary of the board of trustees for Daytop Village, was integral in political campaign after political campaign. His support personally and through the conservative party was essential in electing Governor George Pataki in 1994. In 1994, if you look at the votes that Mario Cuomo got on the Democrat line, And compare them to the votes that George Pataki got on the Republican line. Mario Cuomo won. It was only the votes that the conservative party and Mike Long delivered for Pataki on that line that allowed New York to be Cuomo free. And say hasta la vista to Mario. So irrespective of what you think of his politics, the guy was an incredible guy was married to his wife, Eileen, for 59 years. And the thing with Mike is there's so many things with Mike, and I could talk about them all day. He ran a liquor store in Bay Ridge. That's what he did. See, his city council position was eliminated. They were declared unconstitutional, and they eliminated those those positions of councilmen at large. And they were all. they asked all the council members at large, all of them, there's two per borough, what are you going to do, what are you going to do, what are you going to do? And all of them basically had jobs they were going to try and line up in politics. Mike said, I'm going to open a liquor store. He and his brother had a candy store. His brother, I believe, Tom, is still the chairman of the Conservative Party in Queens. And um, they, Mike Long had nine children. And my wife is one of nine. Mike Long had nine children. So if you lived in the Bay Ridge area where Mike was an essential, was really an institution for since the 60s, If you lived in the Bay Ridge area and you were a young person, you were always in school with one of their children. They had so many kids, nine kids. So if you grew up in basically over a 15 to 20 year period, you were always in school with a long child. And uh, his son was hurt. His son was a firefighter and was hurt during the uh, transit strike. There had been, you know, there was all this chaos going on during the transit strike back in two thousand three and two thousand five, actually. And his son almost lost his life. He was a staple on talk radio, one of Bob Grant's favorite guests, one of Curtis's favorite guests. And I got to know him two ways, three ways, really: as a political figure, as a as a as a media person, and as a person. And he was delightful in all three. You could agree, you could disagree. But um, he was just a gem. I I was doing a public access TV show in Staten Island when I was 17 years old, 18 years old. Mike, even though he was a national political figure going on, Fox News, CNN, um, you know, MSNBC even, and New York One all the time, he would come all the way out to Staten Island and make the trip all the way out there, drive himself just to come on my public access tv show which probably 10 people were watching. And and to me that that says a lot about Mike Long. And the thing with Mike is, and I was talking to my dad about this cuz he got to know Mike um a little bit back in 2008. I've known Mike, I knew Mike 10 years before that. Mike was only 82 years old. He passed away at the age of 82. Mike to me has seemed old as long as I've known him. So I've known him more than 22 years. So he was a young man when I knew him at, at initially. He seemed old back then. And he's always seemed old. There was this one incident where um, they tried to rob his candy store. Some gangsters tried to rob his candy store. And they, they, he got into a confrontation with them at gunpoint. They beat him pretty well. But ultimately, you don't mess with Mike Long. Mike Long got the better end of that, uh, of that, comp- you know, that uh, confrontation. So Mike's motto was the Marine motto, Semper Fi, and uh, he's really going to be missed not only by me, not only by so many different political figures over the years, but by the conservative party, which he took such pride in leading for so many years. I interviewed Mike many times over the years, but my favorite interview with him was in February of 2019 when he decided to retire and no longer be the chairman of the conservative party. They gave him the honorary title of Chairman Emeritus, and he served in that position until he passed away. And I asked him at the time, three three years ago, why does New York still need a conservative party? And this response really sums up Mike Long's political philosophy to a T, and the philosophy that he clung to clinged to until the day he died
17: the Republican Party was not really a conservative voice at all Uh, it was the Republican Party was led by Nelson Rockefeller Jake Javits John Lindsay Uh, believe me they were not conservative voices and they were really uh, Democrats wrapped in Republican clothes so uh, the conservative party was formed to be the alternative alternative common-sense voice with, uh, to espouse conservative principles. And, uh, you know, it started with uh, in '62. They got behind Barry Goldwater for president, they meaning the Conservative Party. That was my baptism to politics at Madison Square Garden. And uh, that rally uh, committed me for the rest of my life to conservative causes. I was honored to serve as Ronald Reagan's uh, a member of the Electoral College in '80 and '80. 84 when he carried the state of New York and in and, and conservative principles uh, are definitely sorely needed in the state of New York without a doubt and I like I said I'm going to continue to be that voice when I can and, and push the party forward from behind the scenes not in the front row seat that's all
2: he and I as I mentioned supported a lot of the same candidates over the years so I've had the privilege of speaking at rallies with him over the years introducing him several times over the years. And he was always such a dynamic speaker. Even if you didn't agree with what he was saying, his gift for rhetoric was second to none, honestly. And um, textbook Mike Long, in that interview, and if you want to comment, you can, 800-848-WABC, 800 In that In that interview that I did with him three years ago, He was all about being a team player, not taking credit for his many accomplishments, instead sharing credit with everybody else. Here he was talking about his accomplishments. I do have to ask you about, uh, throughout your tenure as the Conservative Party chairman, uh, there have been a number of highlights. I would certainly think Herb London's candidacy for governor mm-hmm. in 1990 may be one, uh, but helping deliver the governor's mansion to uh, George Pataki in 1994 may be another. If you had to pick uh, the contribution that the Conservative Party uh, has made under your leadership that you're proudest of, what would it be?
17: Well, number one, I, I uh, let me say it this way. I never did any of it on my own. I had the honor to have uh, men and women up and down the state of New York to stand shoulder to shoulder with me to accomplish the various things we accomplished.
2: And that he really believed that he really did. You want to comment? You can certainly do so. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. That's one eight hundred eight four eight nine two two. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Straight ahead This song was apropos. It is hot and getting hotter out there. My goodness. It is warm. Uh, hopefully uh, you're staying hydrated, you're staying cool, and all the rest. All right. Uh, 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. So it is interesting. So I went to my dad's yesterday. And it was I was happy to see my brother Nick, who I haven't seen in a little while. And uh, my new sister-in-law, Kat. And my sister-in-law, Kat, tells me this story. And I was floored at the story that she told me. And I, and I said, she, she said, you may want to tell this on the radio. And I said, yes, I, I will. And then my dad, I was out there in his backyard smoking a cigar with my dad. And he says, no, okay, you got to change the name." All right, we'll change the name. So I said, Kat, why don't we do this? Why don't you leave me a voicemail? Because you're probably not going to want to stay awake until the wee hours in the morning. Why don't you leave me a voicemail explaining everything that happened? And we'll disguise your voice so that people don't know that it's you. And she says, well, I'll be honest. I don't really care if people know that it's me. I said, oh, all right. Well, uh, my dad suggested we should change, you know, not mention any name. She said, oh, it's okay. I don't mind saying it. But I, at this point, became so infatuated with the idea of disguising and distorting her voice that even though she's saying her identity, that it's Cat Moreno, I still wanted to disguise her voice because it's funny. It's fun. You should have seen the pre-production meeting Alex Barnard and I had before the show. He said, "Well, uh, we're going to disguise her voice. She says who it is in the first sentence." I said, "I know." It's funny. It's funny. Disguised voices are fun. So, um, but I want you to pay attention to what she's saying here because this is a serious thing here. A- at least I found it quite serious. Listen to this. This is a true story as told in a disguised voice. To me, from my sister-in-law. I'm Kat Morano.
18: I'm Frank's sister-in-law. And I'm a fitness instructor at a gym in the city. And Wednesday night, I had a class. And I'm a very conversational person. I always like to talk to everybody at the beginning of the class, during the warm-up, you know, kind of keep it casual, keep a good vibe. And at the beginning of class, I go, I don't know about you guys, but I had a muffin and I, you know, my office brought and cake today because it was someone's birthday, so I'm having a sugar down, downfall and I'm really ready for a good workout. That's all I said. Didn't think anything of it. At the end of the class, this woman comes up to me, she effectively corners me, and she says, I need to speak with you about your fat shaming comments. And naturally, I didn't have any idea what she was talking about. I thought maybe I'd played an offensive song that was body shaming, but no. She said that my comments about having a muffin and eating cake glorified eating disorders and were body shaming and she went on to say I don't know where you've taught before but that's not the vibe here Uh, and she said it made the whole class a negative experience for her because I said this comment at the very beginning so needless to say I was very taken aback I'm a very body positive person you know, never would want to offend anyone or anything like that. But I just feel like what I said was so not in that vein at all, that it was really shocking to me when it happened with this woman, when she came up to me and said that at the end of my class.
2: Can you believe that? So uh, again, uh, because it can be a little distracting having her disguised voice. But so she's just making conversation before she leads this fitness class that she leads. And all she says was, all right, I don't know about you guys. I had a muffin uh, this morning in my office, brought in cake. I'm ready for a great workout today. That's all she said. She's trying to be friendly. And and then at the end of the workout, this, this Yenta, I mean, this is the definition. I hate to use the term. Um, I guess it's no worse than using the term Yenta. But this Karen, quite frankly, runs over to her. And accuses her of fat-shaming. And Kat has no idea what's going on. Initially, she thought maybe a song that she played had offensive lyrics or anything. And I can tell you, Kat is the least fat-shaming person that there is. She's all about, you know, supporting people and not belittling anyone. So I was so sorry to hear that, that these people are out there. And they're giving her a hard time over that. But I think it goes to show you, I mean... You really can't say anything. You can't say anything. You, we are now in an era where you cannot literally, you literally cannot make a remark about eating a muffin without people being upset. What is going on in our society? This is nuts, in the words of the late great Ed Koch. if you want to comment on anything we have covered thus far. 1-800-848-9222. Let me say hello to Fred in Brooklyn. Hello, Fred.
13: Yes, hi. Good morning, uh, Mr. Marano. I have personal uh, deep experiences with Mike Long and his wife, Eileen. In fact, I spoke to her a couple of days ago when I found out Mike was and hospice care. And uh, Mike, I'm executive director of the Life Center of New York in Brooklyn. We're a crisis pregnancy center 38 years on the same corner. I've been there perhaps maybe 25 years. And Mike and Eileen were great supporters of my center, coming to many of our dinners and uh, 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 parties and events that we had. And they were great people, and I loved them very much. And uh, we prayed very strongly for mike and eileen's son who was if you remember the fireman yeah i mentioned
2: that matt yes
13: uh, yeah i came in i came in a little late so i didn't hear your whole story and we prayed extensively for him and uh and, and thank god he he did get better and i and i asked eileen about him and he said yeah he's running again so that was a good uh good thing that happened to that family so i just wanted to say that they were through the years that he would come to our affairs and donate to us and I just wanted to mention that about this wonderful man and his wife and the family.
2: Yeah, uh, there will never be another. True Grit, Mike Long. Uh, that is, uh, he is extraordinary. Absolutely extraordinary. Mike, and a big listener uh, to this radio station and to talk radio in general. He was uh, he was something. Mike is on Staten Island. Hello, Mike. Good
16: morning, Frank. Morning. We, we're your sister-in-law. We seem to have a problem in this country with people having this new interpretation of the English language. And I just don't understand it. You know, how that could turn out to be offensive to anyone makes no sense.
2: Is that the craziest thing you've ever heard? It's crazy.
16: Absolutely. And it's not the craziest because you
2: hear this kind of stuff,
16: you know, going on. It's just nuts.
2: Yeah, it it is nuts. It is nuts. Now, what would you have done if you were in her position? Now, she, I think, just apologized and ultimately walked away because, you know, she didn't want to have a fight with this lady. But what would you do if you were in her position and somebody said that?
16: I probably would have did the same thing under the circumstances, apologize and try to explain that it wasn't said in that manner to mean how you interpreted it
2: yeah yeah I, I mean what else can you do in a circumstance like that but i just i just thank you mike i just wonder what goes on in people's brains that they would think to complain about that i mean i just it would never occur to me in a 100 years to complain about that i don't know hey by the way we want to encourage you to join our facebook group Uh, Just search Morano Radio Fans and Haters. That's uh, M-O-R-A-N-O, Radio Fans and Haters, on Facebook. That is not only where all the songs are posted every day, but where it's a a sounding board, it's a platform, it's a forum for people that want to make comments about the show. If you want to say, Jeffrey Gurian is the greatest guest I've ever heard, you could do so there. If you want to say, oh, how could they not have checked Spencer Schneider's Phone connection more thoroughly, you could do so there. If you want to say, oh, you know, Frank was going on way too long about Mike Long, you could do so there. Whatever your comments are about the show, whether they're positive or they're negative, go ahead and do so there. The only thing that I really ask is that you keep it relevant to the show. It's not meant to be a place for posting news in general or comments in general or anything like that or uh, commenting on any of my colleagues that happen to be radio talk show hosts. Just keep it focused on. On the show, 800-848-9222, and we're also on Twitter, at Frank Morano. I had several tweets over the weekend go viral. So you know know what I did because I was going to be without Twitter all day Saturday? I timed a bunch of tweets to go out across the day on Saturday, around the day. I signed one to go out at 11 a.m., one at noon, one at one. And at least two of them, two or three of them, actually went uh, went viral. So that's nice. If you want to find out which ones, follow me on Twitter, at Frank Moreno. It's Frank, M-O-R-A-N-O. Norman is in Brooklyn. Norman got about a minute here. It's all yours. Norman? All right. Norman's got other priorities. Uh, so be it. All right. Uh, coming up in just a moment, You will never guess who's racist now. Believe me, it makes no sense as far as I'm concerned. I will do my best to put this story forward as objectively as I can, but it is pretty absurd from my perspective. All right. Until next hour, in the words of the great Bob Grant. Your influence counts. Make sure you use it.
16: Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.
0: This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now... Here's Frank Morado.
2: Sesame Place, I have not been there in decades, have not watched Sesame Street in decades. Uh, At least I don't think so, but I was a fan of Sesame Street when I was a child. Well, you know what? Sesame Place, which is a theme park in Pennsylvania, which which is kind of based on the show, and it's got characters from the show running around there, Now, they are being accused of racism. Have you seen this? This has got to be the stupidest thing I've ever seen. At least the stupidest thing since Friday. Um, There's a Muppet on Sesame Street called Rosita. And Rosita is, I don't even know what you would describe her as. I don't know what she is what she's supposed to be. But, you know, she's a furry Muppet-looking thing. And she's greeting and playing with some children, and a video surfaced last week in which it appears to show this Sesame Street character ignoring two black six-year-old girls and then hugging a girl that appears to be White. Now, in the original video, the black girls are seen excitedly reaching out to the character, although it appears that the performer had interacted with other children before reaching the girls. The video seemed to show the character shaking their head no in the direction of the two girls. By the way, we don't know who's who's wearing the costume. We don't know who's playing Rosita. Could be someone male, could be someone female, could be someone black, white, Asian... Chances are it's probably a a 19-year-old kid of some gender or some race. I don't know. We don't know who it is. So Sesame Place originally said the performer's costume may have made it difficult to see the girls and that the no gesture made by the character in the first video was not specifically aimed at the pair. The gesture, according to the park, was made in response to multiple requests from someone in the crowd who asked Rosita... To hold their child for a photo, which is not permitted. So then, a new video comes out on Friday, and in the newly released video, it, it does look more like this character is ignoring the black girls. In this newly released video, um, the family's lawyer. By the way, can we pause here? Can we? Can we pause? If you're a victim of racism, and the racism is a Muppet won't hug your child, is that really worth the trouble of getting a lawyer for? How about you write an angry letter? How about you don't go there anymore? Again, I'm not belittling that, if that's what happened. But the fact that this family or these families hired lawyers... And by the way, Benjamin Crump is now uh, involved in this, apparently. I I guarantee you by the end of the week, we'll see Al Sharpton there. But the fact that they hired lawyers, tell me... It tells me that they're interested not in having their six-year-old girls hugged by a fictional character. They're interested in trying to use this to make some money. I think that's what this is all about here. And maybe being celebrities in the process. So... The, in this, the family's lawyer says the new video showed racist intent and contradicts the theme park's original claims following the incident. So this new video is the latest development in what the family says was a clear example of racial discrimination against the, 60, six, uh, the six-year-olds. So the lawyer for the family says that it shows the performer intentionally ignoring the girls. So the video shows that after passing the girls... The character playing Rosita reached towards another girl who the lawyer is saying was white and appears to give her a hug. Now, I don't know what went on here. I think it's as simple as I don't think this performer playing Rosita is racist. And if they are racist, is the form of racism they're really going to take To snub two six-year-old black girls and hug some girl, another six-year-old girl that appears to be white. I mean, come on. Is that really how racists met out their racism? By refusing to hug certain groups of people? I think this is the stupidest thing I've ever seen. I had this, you know, I almost talked about this on Wednesday. But I said, "Oh, okay, nobody's going to take this seriously. Little did I know the firestorm that was about to be ignited. Little did I know there were going to be lawyers and press conferences and statements and protests. They had a protest there over the weekend. They had a protest that nobody showed up to, by the way. They had a protest at Sesame Place. This almost reads like something you'd see in The Onion. So what, does every six-year-old now have a constitutional right to be hugged by fictional characters? I don't even want to know what's going on in Disney. At Disney World, if a character forgets to hug the wrong kid or they don't see a kid that's asking for a hug and then they hug someone else, I don't even want to know what's going on. Tamika Mallory, who is a longtime activist, some might call her a racial arsonist, Tamika Mallory as uh, with the group Women Who March she's I don't know if she's still with the National Action Network but she's she's got a um a long history as an activist focusing on these sort of racial issues. She spoke about this on Friday uh this is courtesy of TMZ all this racism at Sesame Place.
10: What happened to these two little girls uh, is bad enough. Uh, but I think that the statement that Sesame Place uh, released really adds insult to injury.
2: And uh, I uh, okay, let me pause this, for Jody, pause, pause this here. Pause this here, Pause it. Okay, so since she's referencing this statement, let me let me read you what the statement says that Sesame uh, Place put out because I have a problem with the statement as well. This is what the statement says. So they wholeheartedly apologized to the family and said that what the girls experienced was unacceptable and antithetical to our values, principles and purpose. The park said it was reviewing its practices and instituting mandatory training for all employees to deliver an equitable and inclusive experience to guests. Equitable and inclusive experience to guests? What what does that mean? Does that mean everyone gets a hug now? Is that what is that what really what was missing? Quote, we are committed to learning all we can from this situation to make meaningful change. We want every child who comes to our park to feel included, seen, and inspired. I'm glad I'm getting a hair a haircut tomorrow because if this story continues much longer. I will be ripping my hair out of my head. This is insane. And look, I'm not trying to be racially insensitive here, and I'm not trying to be insensitive to these girls' feelings. There is not a... I don't believe for a second that this this character was racist. Again, this could be a black person under there. And I think it says more about the fact that your immediate reaction when you see a Muppet not hug a six-year-old, your immediate reaction is to jump to the the fact that there must be racial bias there. Oh, it must have been because they were black. Well, why? Why why is that the immediate thing that you're jumping to? Why not? uh, Maybe they smelled. Maybe they were sweaty. Or maybe, as I believe happened, maybe the character didn't see these children. But my issue here is... What is the park apologizing for? What 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 are they saying? What are they saying is unacceptable and antithetical to their values, principles and purpose? By saying that, they they're basically saying that this was racist, which I don't believe it was. I mean, think of how sick you have to be to see a muppet not hug a child. And out of all the 9,000 possible reasons that a Muppet might not hug that child, you automatically assume it's because of race. These people are obsessed with race. When I say these people, I mean Tamika Mallory, Benjamin Crump, the original lawyer hired by the family. Uh... This is crazy. This is crazy. Not everything in life is a racial issue. But for these people, it is. Tamika Mallory.
10: Um, But I did speak with her, and she said that really, it it really shocked her that there was not a clear-cut apology and that they did not take real accountability in no way, shape, or form for what happened to her daughter's. Um, and she said that she's really hurt. And In fact, she had been crying uh, because she was just so disappointed oh, in this on. entire experience. And so, you know, we decided immediately to put out a warning to other Black families because the a way warning. that our children are treated in a country that we already know is dealing with extreme racial issues is very important to us, even if they believe that it is possible that this was a misunderstanding it is gaslighting they really should have just taken accountability and said you know what we are sorry and we're going to do some additional training um, and work with our employees to ensure that this does
2: not happen in the future gaslighting what planet am i living on when did this happen when did I wake up in the Twilight Zone? Maybe that's one of the reasons it's so hot out, because I'm actually living in an episode of the Twilight Zone where a a, a Muppet doesn't hug a child and it's immediately due to racism. Does anybody else find this laughable? That there are now lawyers involved? That they felt, that Tamika Mallory felt the need to warn other black families? Oh, my goodness. Well, uh, so, I don't understand... Let's say I pass two homeless guys on the corner, right? Which, hey, in New York, that's very possible. And let's say I choose to give a dollar to one that happens to be white because I see he's got a veteran hat on. And I like, uh, you know, I feel bad that he's a veteran that's homeless and I give him a dollar. And I see another homeless guy a block later and I, I now don't have any cash left on me. And I don't give the black homeless guy a dollar. Does that make me racist? No, I'm not giving the dollar because I no longer have cash on me. But in Tamika Mallory's worldview, it does. And the homeless black folks would then need a warning. This is the most absurd story I've commented on since the last absurd story I've commented on. This is crazy. Benjamin Crump, who's now involved in this, I, I don't understand how this even happens. Do they put up like a a racism signal like the bat signal, and then these people swoop in Benjamin Crump and Tamika Mallory and Al Sharpton. It, you know, it's funny. Al Sharpton's a minor leaguer now. Al Sharpton doesn't even do stuff like this anymore. It's almost beneath him to do this stuff now. He's above this. He leaves this all to the, the Tamika Mallory's and the, the low-grade hucksters like Benjamin Crump. Although now that it's getting a lot of media attention, I do think Sharpton's going to show up. The here was Benjamin Crump.
7: We'll see world take advantage of the
2: moment to make it a teachable moment. What? Our community is going to stand firm
1: for our children. That's correct. The question is, are you standing with us or are you going to stand against us? Uh
2: I I, I almost can't, by the way, just if you're wondering why they mentioned SeaWorld. SeaWorld apparently is the corporate entity that owns Sesame Place. So they're talking about uh, this issue as if it is the number one issue among black children right now. How about the fact, do you know how many black children die every year because they don't know how to swim? That's an issue. That's something that ought to be dealt with. Do you know how many um, black children are being raised without a father? That's an issue. That's something that ought to be addressed. And yet, in the eyes of Benjamin Crump, and I want to hear that one again if we can, Matt, in the eyes of Benjamin Crump, the priority, if you're in the mood for, to look out for black children... Is to attack Sesame Place. We'll see where I take advantage of the moment
1: to make it a teachable moment. Teachable. Our community is going to stand firm
2: for our children. That's correct. The question is, what? Are you standing with us? Or are you going to stand against us? Uh-huh. Uh You you can count me in in the standing against you category, Mister Crump. I um. You know know what the shame of it is? Everything is the shame of it. One, this only serves to divide people more, right? Uh, This does nothing to bring people of different races closer together. Two, Benjamin Crump is an intelligent guy, presumably, right? He's got a law degree. He dresses nicely, speaks well. He's, uh, I'm sure, a very, very smart guy. He's got a lot of energy. Can you imagine that he's choosing to spend his time on this? And I love that they use the phrase teachable moment. The last time everyone was going around using that phrase teachable moment, we had the beer summit at the White House. You remember that when um, when uh, President Obama accused the Cambridge police of acting stupidly? And we had to have a beer summit, which resulted in a teachable moment. Well, who knows? Maybe this will... You know what I had at Sesame Place as a young person, which I enjoyed very much? The macaroni and cheese. Maybe this will result in a Sesame Place macaroni and cheese summit, where you have children of all different races getting to have macaroni and cheese with a one of these characters, Rosita. Uh, although Rosita, I'm sure, is too controversial now. I'm waiting for that. I'm waiting for the people to... Demand that she be kicked off uh, Sesame Street, the TV show, because of this racist behavior. This is just absolutely absurd. And you know what I'm most afraid of here? If they find out who this performer was, and heaven help us if this performer is white. If this performer is white and they out his or her name, that person will be branded as a racist forever. That person will be uh, Justin Volpe meets Bernard Goetz with a side of John Rocker. If, if that person's name is ever let out. It is, this is, I, I hope that doesn't happen. This is crazy. 800-848-9222. Smirconish dealt with this on his CNN show. This was the last thing I saw before my digital detox on, um, on Saturday. And Howard Bragman is a uh, cri- by the way, you want to comment? You can eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. Howard Bragman is a crisis communications expert, and he was talking about these allegations of racism at Sesame Place. This is what he said?
7: At first, I thought it was it was kind of um, your opinion was c- could go a lot of ways. The more I dug into this the more I'm disappointed in how Sesame Place is handling this, and let me tell you why. First of all, their initial apology was very weak. And in my business, you wanna say, you wanna apologize once and you wanna apologize well. That's number one. Number two, you wanna ask a basic question. If you have a theme park that's designated for kids, why, why do you have costumes in the first place where it's hard to see kids. It doesn't work for the performers. It doesn't work for the kids. It's dangerous. Number three, if I'm gonna take a client and have them put a denial online, I better be sure a lot of other people aren't gonna jump out of the woodwork. And as soon as there was a denial by the parent company and and by Sesame Place, an Instagram page was set up and a whole bunch of other videos that appear to be racist started appearing. And then the theme park had to put out a second apology. And then the um, Sesame Workshop had to put out something. And now it's turning into a much bigger situation than they could have imagined. So they really kind of butchered this one so far. They did indeed.
2: 800-848-9222. You're welcome to comment as you see fit. Agree, disagree, whatever. Larry is in Brooklyn. Hello, Larry.
5: Hi, Frank. Uh, I just want to point out, you know, this Tamika Mallory, that was the quote I assume was her speaking. Um, You know, I don't think she understands what the definition of gaslighting is. She goes in the quote, she said, it is gaslighting. Well, what she's doing is gaslighting. I mean, unless I'm wrong. I mean, I think I know the English language. It's a matter of definitions. Gaslighting is when you is when you pour flammable liquid over so you you make a fire where none exists. That seems to be what she is doing here, and she's accusing them. What she's accusing them of is is intentional racism. On, on something that's inadvertent, that's not gaslighting. So basically, we have a woman who does not know the English language. Okay, that's that's first of all. Okay, and second of all, I hate to say I hate to say this, Frank, but last week I made a comment about David Patterson, and all I said. Was that he loves Eric Adams as a black brother, and that's why he he was disingenuous? Oh yeah, I remember in, you in his it. comment. Yeah, and you said it sounds racist. It did. You're, it you were you were, doing the, says, you were you doing the same thing as Tamika
2: Camaraderie. L- Larry, doing. Larry, no, I wasn't. Number one, um, I will. We will. You know, let the folks at Sesame Place know that in case this performer that played Rosita gets fired, that you are willing to take his or her spot. Number one. Number two, first of all. Uh, You're doing the same thing that Tamika Mallory is doing because you immediately ascribed a racial motive to Governor Patterson's behavior. Now, uh, follow me here. There could be a thousand reasons why this costumed character didn't hug those two girls. And Tamika Mallory immediately assumes that it's due to race. There could be a thousand reasons that right. David Patterson chose to endorse Eric Adams and chose to say he was doing a decent job as mayor. You, just like Tamika Mallory, immediately assumed it was due to race. I think to in both your cases, both Tamika Mallory and you, to immediately make the jump to race and racial solidarity, it shows a a, a sick obsession with race. To be honest, I, I mean, I, I don't think. I'm inconsistent at all, but if I am inconsistent, wouldn't be the first time. 800 9222 E. Frank is in Astoria. Hello, E. Frank.
19: Yes, Frank, uh, I'm not an expert on, on this matter. you kidding. I'll tell you my personal experience with uh, issues that are conflictive with racial misunderstandings. When I was a civilian volunteer auxiliary police officer at my local precinct, and I used to do patrols, Many uh, citizens throughout the community would criticize the fact that I wasn't too white-looking. I looked kind of like Hispanic. They would come up to me and say, "Listen, uh, do you want some money? Do you?" You know, they were doing integrity tests, uh, what they what they call uh, tests to find out if you were corrupt or nothing when you're on the beat. And all the time, they would say, "Are you Greek? Are you Italian? What race you are?" And I used to have to tolerate that, and I, I never said anything in regards to that. And when I'm a withdrawn fourth degree Knight of Columbus, they have a red bulb in all night of Columbus councils that if you're not a member uh, with a travel card, a travel ID card, you cannot enter the council. They have regulations and rules. And I look at this case that you're talking about. We don't know if the employee there. Uh, felt uh, uncomfortable with certain things that have nothing to do with race. Maybe he felt like the girl was, you know, a little bit sensitive towards things, uh, uh, that, and he psychologically or whatever race agenda the, uh, the employee was felt like, you know, it's not a good thing to squeeze, touch. You know, those things do happen, and I'm not like that. And it's not homophobia. It's not racial. It's just preventative uh, to not touch someone else's child. But immediately it's like when one color is white and one color is black, it's already automatically a racial issue.
2: I- All right, thank you, E. Frank. You you were dangerously close to making some sense there. Uh, we 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 were very, very close a couple of times, but uh, we didn't get there. We didn't get there. You were, you were like, uh, you couldn't bring it in for a landing. You were flying around. I think you were excited just to be heard again and, you know... Mm-hmm. It's. A, I give that a five on the E Frank scale. Norman is in Brooklyn. Hello, Norman.
3: Hello, Frank. Um, you know, I've worked in gyms since my twenties. Uh, I've been a trainer. I've worked as a manager. I just have some. I have sort of an idea of what went on with your sister-in-law. Is your sister-in-law very good-looking?
2: Uh yeah, I would say she is. Yeah, she's certainly in very good shape. She's very fit.
3: Okay. Um, I think what was going on there was jealousy. I think that they come over and they got all sorts of excuses about, oh, you're fat shaming and stuff. And it, what it what it really was was just plain and simple it was jealousy. I, I remember when I was in my 20s and I was a hell of a lot better looking than I am now as far as better built. And I remember the stupid comments used to just come left and right from people. Uh, always kind of like that they were my friends, and uh, but they would always say stupid things. So I just, uh, you know, tell your sister-in-law that it's part of the industry.
2: Uh, well, that's good uh, to know, Norman. You may be right. I will tell you nobody's ever come to yell at me for anything like that. Maybe it's because I'm not good-looking enough uh, to merit that kind of jealousy. Could be. Could be. Wilford is in Newark. Hello, Wilford. Hey. Hello. Hello. I Hello. want Hello. Hello. I saw the video of that
15: character when the two little girls got snubbed. But what it was, he's a lot taller than the little kids. And you were right next to him. But he was looking back at somebody else arguing with them.
2: Tall as a... He might not even saw the kids. Right. I I mean, that's my view of the video. And I think uh, Christian... Just posted the video in our Facebook group if people want to watch it. I, I mean, I don't, think that, I don't think that he did. But it's just, let's say let's say this character did see the children and chose not to hug them for whatever reason. Maybe they're in a hurry. Maybe they're tired. Maybe they got a sore arm. The fact that these activists would immediately jump to assuming that the only reason they wouldn't have hugged the kids is because of racism is, to me, a little sick. Honestly, 800-848-9222. I mean, again, you don't know if the performer is black or white or whatever race. I mean, it's just crazy. Peter is in Pennsylvania, the scene of the crime. Hello, Peter. Peter! 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 All right, Peter has other priorities, busy discriminating against some people at, at SeaWorld. 800-848-9222. Gigi is in Manhattan. Hello, Gigi.
12: Yes, good morning, Frank. Good morning. I think that you revealed your racism by assuming that two little black girls were sweaty or smelly. You've got to be kidding. What? If those were white kids, you wouldn't have said that. Well, Gigi, I wasn't... That's set. the typical stereotype, that black people are smelly and 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 dirty and ignorant. Gigi, You've got a problem. You're talking about other people. You, uh, Carmine's daddy better get it, get on it.
2: Well, okay, so Gigi, I wasn't Why set. were the kids
12: sweaty Gigi, and smelly?
2: Hang on, they, I didn't say they were. I you say, did no, so! Gigi, la, la, I didn't interrupt you. Let me speak. So, Gigi, all I was saying is that there are a hundred possible reasons why this character may not have uh, hugged these children. And I did not say these children were sweaty or smelly. Yes, you did. No, I, I said maybe. You said, I he, said The may-
12: person probably Gigi. didn't Gigi. hug them because they they could have been smelly. I said, or they could have been uh, this and that and the right, other. Right, That's, That's possible. That's disgusting. Uh, Gigi. Uh, and I, you you better get your act together. Stop all that drinking and going to uh, 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 Atlantic City. uh okay. So, um, Gigi... When Carmine plays this years later, what do you think he's gonna think?
2: Well, I, I think... I, I don't know what he's gonna Why think. Why
12: don't you just apologize? I, Those kids were not smelly. Or Gigi, I didn't say they
14: were smelly! I, I said... I
12: looked at pictures of them, of <sighs> children going toward the characters just automatically grab a kid. Gigi, do you think
2: this character was guilty of racism here?
12: You have... Great. You're guilty of racism. Okay, well, put me
2: aside. Put me aside. We already know. I don't
12: know what the character was doing, but your statement shows that you're a racist. And I hope that Dominic and some of the other black media people pick it up and say something.
2: You know what? I I think Dominic will do that. When I walk in tomorrow, I think Dominic is just going to turn his back to me, won't even address me. Thank you very much for that. Very thoughtful, very calm. Very rational call, Gigi. I did not say these children were sweaty or smelly. I said I was listing innumerable hypothetical reasons why a character may not hug a child. And all I was saying is it's not always due to race. It could be due to any factor. I said the reason I think this character didn't hug these children is because I don't think the character saw the children. <sighs> Peter- that's right, Frank. Signor not so smart. That's right, that's right. I-, I like that lady. I like that lady. Let me hear her again.
8: That's right, Frank.
2: Signor not so smart. Can we give her number to Gigi so they can get together for their Frank Morano hate meetings? Uh, Peter, in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, from the scene of the crime, has returned. Peter, I am surprised you're willing to appear on a show with an unrepentant racist like me.
5: That's right. I am too, Frank. Listen, he, here's the simple answer to this. Sesame Place has been there as a well-established organization for years. Do they have a pattern of their characters? No. Not no. Black? No. Exactly.
2: Exactly. <laughs> uh, Peter, I, I think that's an excellent point. Uh, this, to me, makes absolutely no sense. Absolutely no sense. 800 848 9222. I'm a little late here, but let me squeeze in at least one or two more quick calls before we get to the $1,000 minute. And those of you that are holding, uh, if we don't get to you here, please continue to hold and we will get to you. Victor is in North Bergen. Hello, Victor.
8: Uh, yes, good morning, Frank. You know, do you remember that, that scene with, with George Costanza and uh, Jerry Seinfeld when Jerry Seinfeld says to George, uh, uh, he says, uh, does everybody have to like you? And George Costanza says, "Yes, everybody has to like me." You know,
1: remember that one with with the uh, you know the one with the uh, uh, woman who was yes, the yes uh, I remember
2: yep, I remember yeah. It, yeah it, it seems as though black people
15: seem to always like be like George Costanza. You know, white people have to like them.
2: You know, well, I, I mean, don't. <laughs> well, Victor, I feel like that's a little bit of a racial stereotype on your part i mean for you to ascribe motives to every black person i think that's a little bit no of...
16: no but i mean you know but i mean when you have something like this oh you know, this was racially motivated kind of like why do people have to like you you know i mean you
2: know i mean it, 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 if i don't want to no, invite but, some but people Victor, nobody's saying and thank you for the call nobody is saying that this character disliked these children all we know is that the character didn't hug these children and hugged some other children. That's all we know. There's no liking or disliking. And I think you got to be careful whenever you ascribe racial motivation or or any sort of behavioral characteristics on mass to any any ethnic group or race. Uh, Gina is in Brooklyn. Hello, Gina.
12: Hi, Frank. Good morning. Morning, Frank. When when you made that remark about. Um... Sweaty and smelly. I thought you were talking about the character in his costume. Well, I, I think I, mean, I
2: was. I mean, it was such an off-the-cuff the uh, remark. I, I, I don't even remember. I, I certainly didn't view these little girls as uh, sweaty or smelly.
12: And, you know, there can be thousands of reasons why people do things. I, I don't know why everyone is so narrow-minded nowadays. It's very upsetting to me.
2: No, uh, it's upsetting to me, too, Gina. Thank you very much for the call. 800-848-9222. Hey, um, those of you that are holding, David, Jr. and anyone else that's holding, we'll get to you. We're going to do the $1,000 minute in just a moment where we're going to give you an opportunity to answer 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds. Uh, just be the seventh caller to 800-848-9222. That's 800 uh, 848 Kenneth has been instructed to ignore all the calls from the black callers and only put the white callers through in, in, in adherence to our new policy. I'm just joking. Just joking. Calm down, Gigi. Calm down. Wow. Seventh caller, irrespective of race, color, creed, gender, we will give you an opportunity to answer 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds. 800-848-9222. Straight up.
0: It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
10: Dress up like hipsters and make fun of our
2: Side of Midnight, I'm Frank Moreno. Uh, We're going to talk a little bit about baseball in just a bit, but uh, first, uh, let's give somebody an opportunity to win $1,000. That's right. It is time for
0: The Other Side of Midnight presents It's the Thousand Dollar Minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank
2: Murano. Thank you very much. Let's say hello to Don in Summit. Don, uh, have you you ever been to the Summit Diner? Yes, I have. Is it as great as everybody says? It's better.
1: Really? It's a wonderful spot and nice meeting place. They do a lot of charitable work.
2: All right. i got to check it out. I'm looking forward to trying it. It looks like a great
1: place. Many great places in Summit. All
2: right. Uh, Now, are you familiar with the rules of this game, Don? Yes, I am. Okay, great. So why don't we go ahead and get started. The timer will begin after I ask the first question. What does a chicken lay? Eggs. Which ocean is New Jersey nearest to? Atlantic. What body part is reshaped in plastic surgery known as a rhinoplasty? Nose. What singer is known for the songs Rocket Man and Philadelphia Freedom? Elton John. What giraffe is the mascot for Toys R Us? Mm, Harry? Ah, no. Unfortunately, mm. not. It was. Jeffrey, Jeffrey the Giraffe. I'm sorry, Don. All right, Don, I'm going to put you on hold. Uh, give uh, Kenneth your information if you would, and uh, we will give you a consolation prize of some sort. He got up to question number five, Jeffrey the Giraffe of uh, Toys R Us fame. I don't think that was too difficult a question for a number five. I think that was a very fair question. But no, you're know, right, Matt? Everybody knows Jeffrey. Right? Yeah, okay. that
7: was kind of easy, actually.
2: Yeah, it was, right? Okay. Um, I always get when people when people um, don't get the question that early in the game, I always think maybe I made the question too hard, but I think that was okay. All right. Hey, um, yesterday was a great day for baseball, a great day for New York, a great day for Brooklyn and quite frankly, a great day for America. Gil Hodges has been inducted into the National Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown. This is a long time coming. I only wish this would have happened when Gil Hodges was alive. Now, as a player, my analysis is that Gil Hodges' numbers are could have gone either way. He could have made the Hall of Fame. He could have not made the Hall of Fame. He could have gone either way. But as a manager, those contributions, including the Miracle Mets of 1969— that, in my view, that makes it an open-and-shut case as to why he should have been a Hall of Famer a long time ago. And I think it's crazy that, uh, that it's been this long. I remember 20, uh, 20 years ago I was campaigning to get Gil Hodges into the Hall of Fame. This is a guy whose number 14 is retired by the L.A. Dodgers Retired by the New York Mets, an eight-time All-Star, a three-time World Series champion, a three-time Gold Glove Award, a guy who hit four home runs in one game. And for Met fans, the most impressive thing to me is that he um, he took us to the World Series and died way too young. Died uh, before the opening of the 1972 season. And uh, a guy that could have lived at that point in his life anywhere in the world, and he chose to live in Brooklyn and uh, to have him pass away at, uh, at the age of 53 I think I think he was 53 let um, me double check that age is something that, at 47, 47 years old geez, So in addition to the fact that he belongs in the Hall of Fame on the merits. Gil Hodges is very much an emotional favorite for the the Hall of Fame, as far as I'm concerned. And his daughter gave a very heartwarming speech at the Hall of Fame induction, and it was great to see so many New York Mets on hand there, including Cleon Jones, who was an integral part of that 1969 New York Mets team, and I got to meet Um, Cleon Jones when I was working with the Brooklyn Cyclones and I spent a lot of time with Jones asking him about that 1969 season and the leadership that Gil Hodges provided and he had nothing but laudatory things to say about about Gil Hodges this was uh, Gil Hodges daughter Irene in Cooperstown yesterday
14: it is such a privilege to stand here today as the Hall of Fame honors my father He was a very humble man, but he would be so proud to be here with the best of the best in baseball. Fifty years ago, not only did the Mets and the Dodgers lose one of their heroes, Mm. we lost a husband and a father. Our greatest gift, although my father's life was cut so short, was his influence on those around him. His teammate, Jackie Robinson, once said, a life is not as important. It, a life is not important except for the impact it leaves on others. My father sincerely believed that and led a life that has impacted others in a positive way.
2: Absolutely. Could not agree more. And if you think about uh, the the job that Gil Hodges did with that New York Metropolitan team. he. His first year managing the team was 1968. They had a losing record. They won 73 games. They lost more games than they won. The very next year, they not only won 100 games, they won the World Series. Now, when can you point to a turnaround like that in the world of baseball? It's very rare. It's very rare. With mostly the same personnel. So it's not as if they did this this parade of signing the best players in baseball, and that's what led it to... Um, Turn around, no, no. Hey, uh, I also I, I rarely do this, but yesterday I was reading the uh, Sunday New York Daily News, and I came across a letter to the editor that I thought was so brilliantly written on the subject of baseball. This was their lead item in Voice of the People, I've, and this was one of those things where this guy said everything that I was thinking, except he worded it much more brilliantly. And it has to do with the baseball commissioner, Rob Manford. This is from Mark Savino in Tivoli, New York. Rob Manford is probably the worst commissioner that any sport has ever had. He has taken the best sport ever devised and has ruined it. First, he has this stupid rule of a ghost runner on second base when extra innings start. Then... He is going to have a home run derby at the All-Star game if it goes into extra innings. Thank God that didn't happen. He then convinces all of the Major League teams not to sell physical tickets, only tickets that are sent to a person's smartphone or device. What happens if a fan does not have a smartphone or device? They are unable to go to a game. How fair is that? This idiot commissioner is more interested in bringing in young fans than helping the older fans. It's the older fans who have the money and time to go to more than one game a year. The young fans do not go to games as much, and if they do, it's usually just one or two. When they are there, they're looking at their phones and not watching the game. Now this commissioner wants to have advertisements on uniforms and helmets during next year. Are you kidding me? Why not make it Disney World and be done with it? He needs to go, and he needs to go now. If he continues to be commissioner, baseball will be dead, and it will be his fault. I love this letter. I absolutely love it. I wanted to frame this letter when I read it. And he's absolutely right. I agree with every single point here. And and it just, to me, reiterates this era we're in in which older folks don't count and their interests are secondary and we have to worship the God of youth. Not for me. Not for me. All right. I had a lot of other stuff to get to, but I was too busy being called a racist. We're going to do 15 seconds of fame in just a minute. 800-848-9222. I'm going to squeeze in... Two quick calls here uh, on the Sesame uh, Sesame Place incident. Just please be be quick, both of you. Jr. is in Brooklyn. Hello, Jr. Frank, how are you? Uh, I'll be quick. You need
16: to look into prior meetings with this character and children. I know it's probably exhausting because there's thousands a day. But if you shuns more than one black child, you might have a little bit of an issue there.
5: Shouldn't be too quick to jump into it, but
16: you might want to, you know. Not point fingers, but definitely look into whether or not it's a pattern.
2: Well, yeah, I mean, another caller brought that up. Uh, So far, there's no evidence that it is a pattern. David in the Bronx.
3: Hey, Frank, let me just address
4: one of your callers. I think his name was Victor, who said that black people want everybody to like them. That is 100% nonsense. I don't care if somebody like Victor likes me or not. What I expect, though, Victor and similar callers, is to be treated equally to every person when you interact with me in public. I don't want to go to your house. I don't want to date your daughter, and I don't want to move next to you. Just treat me like everybody else and stop being a racist, Victor. Thank you, Frank.
2: Thank you. Fifteen seconds of fame, straight ahead. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two one two three four five. Five open lines, 800 848 9222, straight ahead.
0: It's the other side of midnight with Frank Murano.
2: midnight. Uh, Thanks to Andy B for this terrific theme song. Uh, Andy B was calling in earlier. I didn't have an opportunity to go to his call, uh, but apparently uh, Curtis was taking some shots at him over the weekend. So I um, I you know, I'm sorry they I didn't get to Andy, but so be it. Hey, if you want to be heard for 15 seconds, now is the time. There's three open lines, 800-848-9222, uh, 800-848-9222, whatever you want to say, any comment, any subject, now is the time. We will uh, get to as many of your calls as possible. So start queuing up. Three open lines now. 800-848-9222. It is time for...
0: The Other Side of Midnight. This is 15 Seconds of Fame. Hey!
2: Joe, we Ron on Kankama. Frank, you never said
16: anything like that. You never said anything about the kids being sweaty and smelly. This woman called over the weekend, Curtis Lewa. She was lambasting you and your wife a couple of weeks ago and this week, saying that you're unfit parent, she's a nut, you're not a racist. She needs serious help.
15: Victor in Manhattan. Uh, you know, when a reporter asked Ocasio-Cortez how, how tennis nets, fishing nets, and mosquito nets are made, she replied, oh, that's an easy one. They just sew the holes together.
2: Larry in Brooklyn.
5: Yes. where we accuse each other of racism, it leaves the door open for others to accuse us. To infer, just to simply infer that somebody favors somebody as a black brother is not necessarily racist. Put that in your hat and smoke it.
2: Frankie in Glendale.
5: I'm really sick and tired of this word racism. They should ban that word. And a lot of people out there in our nation... Better know where we came from. Get rid of the hate in your mind,
2: your soul, and your heart. Joe in Brooklyn. Uh, Did anybody ever think that maybe blacks and whites are never meant to live together? Uh, Thank you, Joe. Uh, uh, Yeah, let me distance myself from that remark completely because... I think blacks and whites not only have lived together for a long time, and things have gone quite well, but I think certainly better racial integration is certainly always possible. Nothing wrong with that. Eddie is in Hackettstown. To 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 Oh, boy, it's contagious. Richard in New Jersey. Yes. Bald. Bold,
5: bold, Curtis is bald.
19: No life, crazy wife. <laughs> Smells like cats. Bold, bold, bold. Did
2: I miss the memo on a full moon tonight? Did I miss that? And and finally, Andy B. Hello. Hey, hey Frank, what's that lawyer's name? I'm gonna get
5: him to fight and be Curtis with me.
2: Yeah, uh, Benjamin Crump. Yeah, you should get him. You should get him. I bet he'd go after Curtis. All right, we'll give Andy the uh, the last word. Benjamin Crump is he's also working with the George Floyd uh, family. Can you imagine that? He's going from working on the George Floyd case, a guy that was murdered by a cop, to then worrying about a, a, a Muppet at Sesame Place. My goodness. All right. Okay. Uh, tomorrow we got some fun stuff planned for tomorrow, and uh, I haven't uh, I haven't figured what it is yet. But uh, trust me, it'll be fun. Uh, if you want to stay in touch, you can email me frank.morano at wabcradio.com. Frank Morano, good day.